Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today it's all things King of Monsters as we're going to talk about the new Godzilla Minus One movie, the 1979 Marvel comic version of Godzilla where he takes on the Marvel Universe, and a bunch of other things with our special guest returning after a long seven and a half years is cartoonist Xander Cannon, who you may know as the creator of the recently completed and soon-to-be-completely-collected Kaiju Max, which, as you didn't know from the title, also features giant monsters and such. So we're, if you haven't seen Godzilla Minus One, you might as well save this pod until you have, because we're basically going to discuss the entire thing from beginning to end, plot point by plot point. We're going to talk about the character motivations and everything, how great it is, how great the special effects are, some of the more hokey stuff in it, some of the references that we thought about while we were watching it, and one big one that I kind of hoped would be in the movie but is very, very fan servicey, but I think would have been really, really cool had it actually been in the film. So you have to listen to see what that is. After that, we're going to talk about the 1979 Marvel Comics version of Godzilla that lasted for 24 issues in the late 70s. Uh, Xander read it as a kid, but did not read that many issues, whereas I took one for the team and read, or at least skimmed, all 24 issues this week. So we're going to talk about the style of the book, the creators, mainly Doug Minch and Herb Trimpey, um, how they integrated Godzilla into the Marvel Universe, who he fought, who he did not fight, and what Marvel character actually becomes... Godzilla's Captain Ahab, where he spends the entire two-year run of the book obsessively trying to catch him. After that, we're going to segue into talking about Xander's comic, Kaiju Max, which I said is about it's uh, giant monsters in prison. Uh, there's not a lot of fighting in it. It was one of the things we talked about. There's not like any sort of gratuitous double-spage monsters fighting each other. It's more a lot of big giant monsters who you can recognize if you squint sort of the numbers have been filed off of. Uh, discussing their problems of being in prison and there's lots and lots of tropes that you know from both Kaiju and Mecha and things like that. The giant monsters, the science patrol team, the adorably annoying yet cute little kid, etc, etc. Um, the third collection of Kaiju Max, which collects the last two volumes, is coming out in hardback. Probably by the time you've heard this, it may be out or about to be out. So you can get the entire 30-issue run of Kaiju Max in three hardcovers. That's from Oni Press. After that, we uh, we kind of did a lot of meandering talk. We talked a lot about the comics industry. We talked about original art, the loss of original art now that everybody works in digital, the prices of what we used to pay back in the day, what we thought was expensive, and now things are just like ten times that much. Um, I always ask about his book replacement guide and if we'll, if it'll ever come back and would he bring it back? Would he just start over now that he's had 20 years of craft to learn how the, to improve the mistakes he may have made as a young 20-year-old cartoonist? We briefly talk about the Chainsaw Vigilante, where if you are familiar with the Tick cartoon or the Tick TV show, Xander actually created that back in the day for New England Comics and a bunch of other stuff. Um, it's kind of a rambling, long conversation. That's what happens when you haven't had one of your friends on for like seven years and you have a bunch of weird stuff to talk about. So 
Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. Uh, we had decided, even before we thought that we were going to do a podcast about the new Godzilla movie, and we're definitely going to do one after I saw it and realized how good it was, and I was trying to figure out who would be a good guest to get on the show to talk about it, and then I saw our guest mention something about it on social media, and I was like, hey, you want to come on and do the pod about this, and we'll talk about your book, which we'll, we'll get to eventually. And he's like, yeah, he's like, I haven't been on in a while. And I said, yeah, it's been a while. And then I looked it up, and it's been seven and a half years. Excuse me. It's so, it's, it's so funny. His book had just his, – his, uh, his book, Kaiju Max, I'm going to ruin who, was, who it is, had just come out the last time. I think it had just come out, maybe the first couple issues had come out when he was on the first time. And now it's done and now being – collected so we'll get but we'll get to that so first we're going to talk about godzilla and a bunch of other things of that genre so i'm happy to welcome back the creator of kaiju max xander cannon hey everybody so i yeah i didn't realize you i think you were on like episode like 27 wow wow i'm I'm old school and this is (laughs) it, it may have been like in the first like chronological year of the show or something like that so i'm sure people Went back and listened to it. It probably sound awful and full. Not that it sounds great now, but it's. I mean, it's still basically the same. It may have been the same computer on the same program. Uh, we joked before when we were setting this up. I was like, "How do you want to record?" I'm like, "Is Skype okay for you?" And you're like, "Yeah, that's cool." I said, "I've had younger guests who now laugh when I say, can we do Skype?'" And they're like, "You don't do Discord?" And I'm like, "I I'm on Discord, but I don't do." like audio and video on Discord or Zoom or anything like that. So I'm clinging to my old technology. Like we are both we are both old men, so we cling yeah. to the we cling to I cling to the technology that works. Sure. Well yeah, if you know that it works, that's great. That's know? that's my attitude until like it stops you know, I eventually had to change the program I used to record because this was before Skype actually recorded itself. And like whatever program I used just like went out of business or stopped working or whatever, so I had to find another one. And then luckily, like you can now just record in Skype itself and save the file and yada yada. Again, and I'm still using Audacity to edit it, so it's like if it's not broke, oh, I totally use Audacity. <laughs> you know, what I mean? I'm gonna say presumably if I if this was a Mac, I'd still be using GarageBand, but since I have a PC, it's still using Audacity. So anyway, so Godzilla. So I have people that I whose opinions I respect say, "Wow, this is a good movie." And I was I wasn't sure if it was even going to open here because I swear sort of live in the country. And luckily there was like one theater that sh- that was showing it. And I went and I was like, "Not only is this movie, we're going to get this out of the way first. Not only is this good, it's like this is like award-winning good and arguably best Godzilla movie." ever good so where do you fall on that scale 
Well, I mean, so, I mean, you know, for almost a decade, I lived and breathed, you know, monster movies. And so it's like, it's like, yeah, undoubtedly, it's it's probably the best sort of thematically linked, you know, tonally consistent, you know, like well acted, well directed, you know, the the uh, the special effects are fantastic. The you know, it's it's great. Like it's it is like a top notch movie in terms of my whether it's my favorite. I mean, I wouldn't couldn't even say where it is on the list because all the stuff that I really, really like is terrible oh yeah and, and ridiculous like more if it has more monsters in it it's more good you know usually is my my metric and uh but yeah like you know i remember watching it being like yeah that is a great that is a great movie and that is a great movie to suggest to like non non kaiju movie weirdos you know like like us you know like you'd be like yeah you could you can dip your toes into this water any old time this is a properly good movie shin godzilla same sort of thing like it's a properly good movie um you know but come back to me later if you want to see the, the real stuff <laughs> you know invasion of astro monster or some nonsense like that well it's funny that you say that because i was going to eventually get to this but i was surprised that um somebody we've had on the show recently was brian solomon and we were mainly talking about wrestling but he also wrote a book about godzilla and I was surprised to, like, find this didn't come up when he was on the pod because we weren't talking about it. But I was surprised to see on social media that he said that he really didn't like Shin Godzilla. And I'm like, that's so weird because most everybody that I know really likes it. And I, But I can understand if you're like a Godzilla hardcore that this really, this is like a political movie that features Godzilla in a giant, you know, as a giant allegory, although that's sort of what Godzilla is anyway. Right. But, right. I mean, the fact that it's so just about, it's a political movie about, like, Japanese bureaucracy in Fukushima that just happens to use Godzilla in it. Like, I can understand how they would see that. So I was kind of worried when he said, okay, I'm going to see Minus One, and I'm like, oh, man, if he didn't like Shin Godzilla, I'm like, this is like, like an actual drama with Godzilla. I saw somebody, I'm not going to claim this is original, like somebody said this is like Godzilla meets Ozu. You know, that it's like you've got a monster movie, but you've also got this like serious post-war Japanese like yeah. inner struggle and the main character's got PTSD and you, you've got all the other issues from post-war Japan like smushed into a, like a, a monster movie. But he was yeah. like, he was like, he's like, no, you were right. This was great. I'm like, oh, I like, <laughs> I think he gave, it, I think he gave it like four and a half out of five or whatever. So I'm like, I was relieved at least that like the guy I know that's a Godzilla expert, like, didn't disagree with me. Right. Oh, thank God. Right. Because then you'd have to be wrong, and you know, it's it's. Uh, well, it's. it's I was gonna say, yeah, it's not that I'm <laughs> oh, wrong. No, I'm it's, wrong in my opinion. It's like, oh, I'm I'm disappointed that somebody that I apparently have similar like taste to didn't yeah i mean it's sort of like weird when you know there's as there's every kind of thing like or if it's like music and it's like you know you have a friend you know whose musical taste you really like but then they like one band that you can't stand or or they can't stand like one band that you really like 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 an like an obscure band or something like that and you're like yeah how can we like everything else the same and yet we like violently disagree on like this one little niche part 
of one like pop culture subgenre. Yeah. Well, you know, you have to you have to be able to in, uh, interact with people that you fundamentally disagree with on things like uh, you know movies and mo- music, and not so much on politics. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So for people that haven't seen the movie, it's like I, we're obviously just going to discuss everything about it. So if you haven't seen yeah. it. Yeah, save this for when you have. So anyway, yeah. so and this and this also, I mean, I don't feel like people are going to be greatly surprised by anything that happens. Like, you know, when people are telling me that people are going to see it the first weekend it came out, you know, oh boy, I'm so excited, and I had something I had to do that weekend, so I couldn't see it, and and so I'm like, well, you know, don't spoil it for me. Don't tell me if Godzilla wrecks Tokyo. <laughs> like, you know, pretty much what's going to happen in this movie. You know, there's a couple, there's a couple little twists and turns, but. Um, but yeah, it's I, I didn't feel like it was I didn't feel like it was a particularly surprising movie. No, it yeah, just was like yeah. it just played out all the usual stuff in a very entertaining and very well acted and well you know, well shot way. Yeah, the only things I would say were spoilers would be the fate of a couple of the characters at the end of the movie. Right. You know, that I wouldn't I mean, I wouldn't want to say Oh, when you like, I wouldn't like tell somebody like, oh, if you see this movie and this happens, don't worry because X happens at the end. Like you wouldn't do, you know, that's a that's a Darth Vader is Luke's father kind of deal. Like right, that's right. that like that's like a that's like a bad spoiler. But it's like, yeah, if you say to right. the end, if you're like, oh, by the way, they defeat Godzilla at the end. I don't think that would come as a. Sp- I don't think what? you can get out of town now. And I don't think even like the post title you know, the end question mark. I wouldn't really call that a spoiler because it's like you kind of know how that these movies also end that way anyway because it's like totally. you totally. don't you don't kill, you know, you don't, you don't kill the title character even if he's right. sort of a bad guy. But anyway, so the first thing about this movie is it's set like before, right before the end of World War II and right after. So it's it's a flashback, it's a prequel, however you want to say. So it starts with this uh, Japanese plane landing on this small island in the Pacific, and the guy who's the pilot is our main character, and he tells these guys there's something wrong with his plane. He's a kamikaze pilot, and there's something wrong with his plane, so he had to pull out and abort his mission or whatever. And then the mechanics are like, hey, there's nothing wrong with this plane. So you're immediately wondering, oh, is this is this guy going to be like branded as a coward or whatever you want to say? So while they're in the middle of all this, suddenly Godzilla, little Godzilla, not maybe Godzuki size, you know, but young that would Godzilla, be pretty terrifying Godzuki. I yeah, mean, it would have improved that show, but yeah, um, yeah. So it's younger Godzilla, smaller Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, shows up, wrecks this island, kills every kills all. They the guy sneaks to his plane, and he has Godzilla in his sights to shoot him with his machine guns, but he panics or freezes or whatever thing, so he doesn't shoot him. Godzilla wrecks the plane, and he gets knocked unconscious, and we wakes up. Everybody's dead, uh, except like the one lead mechanic. They're all mechanics on this island. Um, who's been left there to like bury the dead? He's like everyone's dead except you and me, and you froze and you're a coward. And oh by the way, there's nothing wrong. 
why didn't you go through with your mission? There was nothing wrong with your plan. And you know, we sort of cut to the after the war. You know, like this, this is in like this is either in like mid nineteen forty five. So this is like near the end of the war where this first happens. I feel like they were saying something to the like something to that effect, like why you know why give everything you know why why sort of kamikaze fulfill your kamikaze mission when the war is basically already over. So I assume that like you know the uh, Hiroshima the atomic bomb had been dropped and all that sort of stuff. Like that was the that was the vibe that I got that 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 was sort of like was the one mitigating factor in him just sort of being like branded a coward, which is like what's what's the purpose in sort of going out like that when when it wouldn't matter right and so then we see the war ends he goes back to his little village or a suburb wherever he lives uh everything's been destroyed um his parents his parents house has been destroyed and the old lady who's like his next door neighbor sees him and she again she realizes he was a kamikaze pilot and so she immediately shuns him that, uh, like, why are you here? You shouldn't be here. You should be dead, yada, yada, yada. And so there's, so there's, he's mournful about this. And then soon after, he's, like, in the market where they've set up, like, a soup kitchen or functional equivalent. And this woman, like, people start yelling, thief, thief, thief. And this woman runs through holding a baby. And as she's running, she hands him the baby and runs off into the crowd. And he's like, well, what am I going to do with this baby? And so, at first he leaves it. He, like, put, I think after a while, he, like, sort of puts it down, walks, like, three feet, has guilt, goes back, picks it up, and he starts wandering around with it. Eventually, the girl shows up again, and she's like, why didn't you leave it? And he's like, I really couldn't leave it. You know, you can't do that. And then, they, um, he kind of makes friends with her begrudgingly. And gives her one of the one of the things about this. Sorry to interrupt. Okay, yeah, that's, one of the things about this. This I thought with, she was that her character was a little bit inconsistent. Whereas she has, you know, she was sort of like this almost like rogue character where she's just like, you know, oh, she uses her baby and sort of like her status as a, as a you know, to, to, to like steal things and all this sort of stuff. And like plays this weird gambit, leaving this baby with the stranger and, and all this sort of stuff. And then the rest of the movie, she's kind of like plays it super straight and like, you know, just kind of, I don't know. She, she seems almost like the straight woman who's sort of making sensible choices to this guy who, you know, who kind of can't, you know, kind of can't get his life together, which I thought was, I thought was strange. I thought that was a really interesting, uh, like a really interesting um, introduction of sort of like a, a, an interesting character. And then she kind of just, she kind of just plays it straight for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Which that was intriguing. Yeah. You know. And then it turns out this isn't actually her baby because um, they're trying to feed it. And the old, they go to the old woman for help and she's like, is she breastfeeding it? And he's like, well, no, because she's not actually the mother. She just kind of like this woman was dying and said, take care of my baby. And so she did. And then, so the old woman tries to teach him how to like, you can't just feed a baby normal food and yada, yada, yada. So she, like, is going to begrudgingly help these two. And because the, the girl and the baby kind of just move into this guy's house, much to his chagrin. But again, he lets him stay. And so eventually they sort of become this 
like, they're, I guess they're kind of a family, but they're never really, like, officially a family, because one of the threads throughout the movie is his guilt won't let him settle down, so he never asks her to marry him. So, like, even, like, the kid eventually becomes, you know, three or four years old, something like that. And is calling them mommy and daddy, but he always is like, I'm not actually your daddy, but she still calls him daddy. She calls the woman mommy. So he finally gets a job uh, on this fishing boat with this sort of, like, what we think originally is like this collection of sort of kind of misfits, where it's a captain for leftover from the war who has... I think he has like a damaged hand. I think he, I think he has that at the beginning, mm. or or he gets it eventually in the movie. But he has sort of, he's sort of injured. Um, there's kind of like a kooky scientist guy with typical kooky scientist hair. So so you know he's a scientist because he's got that like wacky floppy yeah. kind of Einsteiny hair, and he wears glasses. And then a young guy, and they're on this boat, and their job. This is like this is a great paying yet dangerous post job in post war Japan. They have to go out and find uh, unactivated mines that are still in the ocean and collect them and or blow them up if they can. So it's sort of like bomb, so they're bomb disposal guys in a boat. And as they're out there, oh, and this is like a couple. This is like maybe like a year or two in the future. So like we're slowly progressing over time. Yeah, I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, like montage to sort of like progress a year forward. And it's like, oh, it's kind of nice to see like everybody, you know, kind of like getting their life together and enjoying their friends and stuff like that. And you're, and then, of course, you know, like, well, this can't this can't last. <laughs> right. And then during these sort of montage, we see them detonate the hydrogen bomb in Bikini Atoll, which mm. triggers Godzilla. You know, sort of literally or metaphorically or both. But uh, so then they're out on this boat, and then we get, like, the first arrival of a real Godzilla, like full-grown, nasty Godzilla. And I assume this – I got this – I mean, I sort of knew what was coming, not although not specifically the scene we're going to talk about. But, like, the way they're setting this up when he first goes on the boat, I don't know about you, but I'm like, oh, this is Jaws. This is like, this is like <laughs> Richard Dreyfuss and Roy Scheider and Robert Shaw on that boat. Right. And so I need a much, much, much bigger boat. I almost expected somebody to say something like that, which would have yeah. been funny. But so well, it's funny because when I saw, I first saw a still of that shot of like, you know, the boat hauling ass and then the and Godzilla's head behind it. I thought it was. I thought it was the boat from Jaws and that they just photoshopped Godzilla into it. Right. Uh, I mean, it's basically literally the exactly the exact same boat. Right. So Godzilla shows up and uh, kills, I think, like a, like a Japanese warship or something, or like a big boat. And then like, he starts going after them and their little de- – like their boat is deliberately small and it's, and it's wooden because the mines are magnetized, so they need to be in a wooden boat. But they do have a machine gun on the back, because they use the machine gun to blow up the mines. And that's yeah. one of the first things they sort of do to establish our main character is, uh, the young guy on the boat is all gung-ho, and 
um, like the thing that like initially annoys him to the rest of the crew is he's so young he did not get to fight in the war, quote unquote. And so he's he's rueful that he did not actually get to fight in the war. And like the other three guys are, yeah. you're an all idiot. These, yeah, all these traumatized guys with thousand yard stares are like, you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, it's like you've got the one guy with like sort of a damaged hand, and you've got the main character with like PTSD, and then the scientist guy who designed something. There, I don't remember if he was designed boats or bombs or something, but like he, he's like a scientist, and he, you can tell he was like maybe kind of important but they kind of downplay it at least in the beginning right right and so right mark yeah and then they're like the first time you see them trying to blow up the mines the young guy does was like trying to is all eager to shoot the machine gun but he's just bad at it so the pilot guy has to say no this is how you have to you have to like take into account the water and the wind and of course he like shoots it right away Proving that, like, he actually is a good shot, even though he couldn't shoot Godzilla when he had the chance. So Godzilla shows up, he chases them. They're trying to, like, let the mines loose that they're carrying to try and hurt Godzilla. I think we eventually see the first mine sort of damages him, and then he immediately heals himself. Yeah. And then he's shooting them, and he's shooting him in the mouth, and he does some damage, which becomes a plot point later that you can kind of damage him internally. And then, like, the boat gets wrecked, and, you know, we cut forward again. And so we start, and then, so Godzilla is making his way closer and closer to the mainland. In the meantime, uh, the girl who lives with our main character has gotten a job. She's, like, big, she's like got an office job, because she shows up and she's in, like, what you would attribute to be like a stereotypical sort of like 1950s Japanese businesswoman outfit. Right. You know, and she's gotten a job in Giza in some office or whatever because they're trying to figure out right. what's, yeah. Yeah, like what's going to happen to the baby. And they're like, oh, we'll give him – like the old lady said she'd take care of her while we're gone or whatever. So it's like, okay. But, yeah, so we've now established that like not only is she trying – that she may be moving on. Because we've seen them have us, I think before this, there was a scene where they're all having dinner together. The guys on the boat, and then her and the the baby. And they're asking, like, why won't he marry her, or whatever. Well, first they thought he was married. Well, first they thought it was his kid. And he's like, no, it's not our kid. We just found him, and no, we're not actually married. And they're like, well, why aren't you marrying her? And he's like, oh... You know, he's got all these reasons or whatever. And so she hears this while she's in the other room. So then we get to scene where it's like, oh, she's gotten a job. She's going to leave him. She's like, I, you know, there's no future for me here with you. Because by now, like, they fixed up this. Well, it's, yeah, that, it's been several years. I think he was very annoying about that. Like, telling this baby not to call him daddy. Come on. <laughs> I guess my dad instincts kicked in there where I was just like, Stop being like this, you know, like you, you stop, stop being a jerk, you know, but, but I but, guess that that was his journey. That was his journey right. that he had to go on. But I just I was very I was very annoyed by him. And he's also we, uh, one of the other things he's been having nightmares, as you would mm-hmm. expect, like not only from the war, but Godzilla. And yeah. then so like she tries to comfort him and he's so like, is this real? So he thinks like, 
I'm actually dead, is this real, blah, 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 blah. So he's obviously still has all these issues. And at one point in the future, he's like when they're finally looks like they're getting ready to settle down, he's like, have these ghosts finally let me move on with my life? Because he was the, the mechanic guy, when they were on a boat at the end of the war, he walked up to him and gave him this envelope that contains pictures of all the dead mechanics from that island. Oh, yeah. So he's been carrying around all of these pictures of all these dead guys that he sort of feels guilty for killing, or feels guilty for having let die. And he leaves the picture on like the shrine that he has to his parents in their house. Because by now they've rebuilt the house. Um, he's now got a motorcycle. You know, again, sort of showing he's like got like a slightly higher status than maybe some of the other people. So, and like, it's funny because I was sort of expecting that to eventually be part of the plot somehow, but I guess it was just so to show that he's moving on in the world that he's actually got a vehicle. But like, it never really went. That was never like a plot point. So, finally, Godzilla shows up because he finally says, "Oh, am I finally is are the fates or the ghosts now finally going to let me?" move on with my life. And as soon as he says that, what happens? Godzilla hits the mainland, and where does he hit? He's in he's in Giza, where the girl is working. Yeah. And then, so we, you know, we get some classic Godzilla uh, destruction. I assume, del- because of other things in the movie later, I assume deliberately aping some of the famous Godzilla shots, like, she is on the subway train when he picks yeah. the picks the like the famous in the original Godzilla movie where he's wielding the subway subway cars or the train cars. She's she's in one of them, and then eventually, of course, she's in the one that he breaks in half and she's like dangling out of the car. And yeah, luck- of course, uh, of right? Course. And luckily falls falls into the ocean, so she's not dead. Because really, at this point, you really don't know, other than probably the main character, you figure one of these, one of our main supporting characters is going to bite the dust. Yeah. Because they have to, because it's a movie. Right. So, she's trying to escape, and he's rampaging through the through the city, and he shows up, he finds her in this throng of millions of people. And so they're running away down the street with all these other people, and... It's time for Godzilla to unleash the atomic breath with <laughs> which I don't remember if 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 this happened in in Shin Godzilla or not but like his spines start lighting up as right. they go up his back like a countdown right right uh, lighting up and sort of like you know it like kind of jutting out which I thought was you know it, it, it was like very science fictiony Oh yeah. Like it was like totally click awesome. yeah, it was like click 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 as they're lighting up. And then he lets out like the uh the atomic fire and then luck she as they're running, she pushes him out of the way into an into an alleyway. And then everyone else like gets sucked away by like the uh by the recoil. Mm-hmm. And so when he wakes up finally like everything is just totally decimated around him, and he's like the only one standing. Again, it's right. like more. Of the, so he's got more of this survivor guilt. 
And so, you know, the army and the scientists and stuff show up, and everything's cordoned off, and they're, like, pointing Geiger counters at everything. And he has to go back and, you know, try and explain what happened to Mommy and all that stuff. And then, so Godzilla goes away, and then the government decides, uh, or the American government, because we get some stock footage shots of General MacArthur, which is sort of a nice touch, saying the government can't get involved in this, or the, the Americans can't come to help, because the Soviets will see this as sort of like an act of aggression. Like, so we can't escalate our military because we don't want to, like, upset the Russians. So you guys are kind of on your own, even though, you know, we took over your country and are ruling it, you know, for like the next eight years or whatever it is. So they decide... So there's this group of civilians decide that they're going to have to try and fight the monster themselves if the government won't do it. So uh, this group, all these people come to this office, and there's um, there's like a naval commander, or admiral, or something there, but he's like in a suit. But you can tell this guy is like military, and he's like, you know, the government can't do anything, so we're going to do this ourselves, and then here's our plan and here's like our lead scientist, like Dr. Noda, who is our friend, the professor from the shipping boat. He was actually like a lot more important than we thought he was. So they come yeah, up that, that, and it wasn't ever really explained why he was on this random shipping boat. It's not like he was sort of like recruiting people to his cause. He just was sort of like slumming, I guess. I, I kind of wondered, one of the things I sort of projected was, yeah, whether he was, I guess, I don't know, I guess they really didn't know about Godzilla, because part of me was wondering if he was just sort of, like, doing, like, field research. You know, that yeah. he was he was sort of undercover. Like, he was doing what he was supposed to be, but, like, he kind of, like, in the back of his mind, he was also, like, maybe doing recon or something. That that may be me projecting it. But they came, they came up with this plan. And which I think is, I think now has maybe become the standard way that you fight Godzilla, is <laughs> is that they're going to freeze him. Right. So they come up with this really convoluted plan that they've the Japanese government has given them like four old warships, or they may not be. I guess they're sort of smaller size, but they're still you know like big military boats, and they come up with this plan where they're going to try and freeze him. They're going to use Freon. They're, well, first they're going to drag him out. They're going to lure him to above, like, whatever the sort of big uh, trench in the Pacific, the closest, like, giant trench, like the Marianas Trench of the Pacific Ocean, whatever it was called. And so they're going to freeze him so that he sinks all the way to the bottom, like, you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea or whatever. <laughs> and then they said, but if that doesn't work, we have these guys from like Tokyo Balloon Company who are going to, who are going to like attach these inflatable, these giant inflatable rafts to them and then bring them rapidly up to the surface so that like he dies of the bends. Because I guess... Well and I think it's funny because when they're they're coming, they're telling us this whole long sort of plan, 
And it, I'm just sort of going like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they're like, and we're going to need an ace pilot to do this one part of it. It's like, okay, that's all I really needed to know about this plan is that you are somehow going to organize it so that our main guy is going to get to do the thing that he's sort of failed to do throughout the movie. Right. And the the other part is, see, while they're explaining it, they have like models. They have like a yeah. giant. They have like a giant fish tank. Where they're like showing what they're gonna like, how they're gonna freeze them and sink to the bottom of the thing, and then and they've got charts and overhead projectors, and it was like it's like wonderfully retro. We were talking about before we started recording about like retro technology and stuff like that, and this is all like wonderfully retro. Yeah. yeah so they find yeah, and then conveniently they they get this sort of experimental aircraft that was never actually used, that was being saved for the end of the war if there would have been a land war in Japan. So it's a sort of like funky experimental looking plane. And they're like, well, it's kind of in disrepair. Again, because this is now like four or five years after the war. Or three or four years after the war. Mm-hmm. So it's not this great shape. And he's like, he's like, I know just the guy who could fix this if we can find him. And he goes to like some bureaucratic office and he's trying to find this guy whose name is Takibana. Okay. And they can't find him. Because they're like, they're like, dude, do you have any mis- missing people there are? And he's like, well, can you tell me where he's from? And he's like, you know, name some prefecture or whatever. And so he's like, okay. So apparently he comes up with this plan where he starts sending all of these letters out that basically are calling this guy out saying that he was responsible for all these guys being killed on Odo Island. <laughs> I, thought that, I thought that was a hell of a twist where it's like, you know, he's this, this earnest guy. Like I really need to get in touch with this person. He's the only one who can help. And then what does he do? He just is like, sends out a letter. He's like, this guy's a bitch. <laughs> yeah. He's like, this guy's a coward or whatever. So eventually, so we see our main character and he's like walking down the street and we see this guy come up from behind and we know it's Takibana because he has a limp because he got hurt in that Godzilla fight. Like, we established after the movie and then when they're on the boat that he now has a limp. And he, like, sucker punches him from behind and he starts beating the crap out of him. And he's like, what? He's like, what the hell are you doing? He's like, I figured this is the only way to find you was to, like, draw you out by making you angry. And he's basically like, it worked! And then he starts kicking him again. <clears throat> he's like, no, no, no. He's like, I need you. He's like, I need a mechanic. And so he, he takes him to this, you know, show him the plane. And he's like, wow, is this a, like, like super magic plane, whatever it was called. Yeah. And he's the, like. The propeller in the back. Yeah, cool. yeah. It was a really weird looking thing. And he's like, we have this plan to fight Godzilla. He's like, but we need to fix the plane. Because I'm going to fly it. And he sort of gives him the side eye. And I don't know if it's at this point or if it's later. He he like he decides that we're gonna put a bomb in this. Like in addition to making it fly and putting machine guns on it or whatever, he has them take part of the plane out, and he has them install a giant bomb. Because his plan, this is he's going. This is how he's going to redeem himself, and he doesn't tell the other guys about this. He's like during the fight. Basically, I'm going to fly into Godzilla's mouth and set the bomb off, and that and that'll kill him. And you know, they all kind of look at him weird. He's like, "I'm finally going to like avenge everybody." 
And the guy's kind of like, okay, okay. And so they go along, and then they're building the plane. And then at some point, they cut to him, and he's looking at the plane. At Takibana is looking at the plane, and there's like a label on the on the pilot seat. It's like obviously written in Japanese, so we don't know what it says. And it's kind of far enough away that I don't know if you could read it, even if you could read it. Oh, I thought it was in um, German. Like, oh. I thought it was like a German uh, ejection seat. Oh, okay. You know? See, okay. I, didn't, I didn't pick that part up. I was just like, like he was looking at it, and I was I didn't figure it out. So anyway, so yeah, so we'll learn later. We'll, again, this is one of the spoilers we were talking about. Um hmm. That the plane actually has an ejector seat. And so Takibana tells him, um, his name is Shikishima. We never actually said his name is Shikishima. Um, yeah, he's the hero guy. Yeah, the, the hero guy. And he tells him, when the time comes, eject. Like, so he's sort of forgiven him. Like, he doesn't want to see him die making this plan. He's like, no, you live. You know, if you can, pull the ejector seat. Um, so we finally get to the big fight. Godzilla shows up in Tokyo, or like outside Tokyo, early. Like, he's apparently faster than they thought he was, because they had set up all of these buoys in the ocean that would go off when he showed up, because they're all radioactive. They're all like Geiger counters. And so, they're like, okay, he's on his way. So they start, like, loading the ships. And, like, as they're doing this, he shows up, and they're like, oh, crap. So they're finally like, so go out to sea, go out to sea, we're still going to try and do this. And so he shows up in the plane, and he lures Godzilla back out into the ocean. Um, then the boats start circling him with these cables that have all the Freon in it. And this is actually the second time this happened, but it made me sit. But this is this is what made me pop the first time. Like, they're starting this fight, and they start playing the original Godzilla theme. Like, the 50s Godzilla theme. Right. And I was like, I started clapping in the theater. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be some some carnage. <laughs> some carnage is coming. Because I think they played it when he was rampaging through Giza. But I, I know they played it at least one time before this. And I was like, is that the real one? But, like, this time they play, like, the whole two minutes worth. And yeah. so... Oh, and it's like, because, and it's, and it's like, you know, it sort of advances in intensity too. Like, it's a great, it's a great piece of music to sort of like ramp up anxiety <laughs> for, yeah. for a big scene. Yeah, it's, it's like a great, it's the kind of thing where, this is one of the highest praise I would give like a piece of music like that. Like, it would be a great, like, wrestling entrance music. If you, <laughs> because one, it's a great piece of music. And two, I think people probably know that it's like the Godzilla theme. So if you have like, a big giant guy who like yeah. came to the ring with that, you'd be like, oh, he's he's here to like kick some butt. Yeah, well, he yeah, he better live up to the hype. Right. That's uh, that's you better you're setting the expectations sky high at that point. Right. So um, so they start they start doing the plan. They sink him, and then he gets I think maybe like fifteen hundred meters deep, and then stops, like because it's not going to work. So then they're like, okay, like deploy the balloons. And then he raises up some and then stops because he's figured out like how to like, he like popped the balloons or something like that. So they're trying to like 
pull them up. Now they're trying. The boats start. Um, all the boats are going in opposite directions to try and pull them up because they've all got giant cranes on them that have the cables on them. But like they all eventually get stuck because they they don't have enough pull. So they're kind of at this impasse. And then all these other like hundreds of boats show up, including the. They they told one of the things we had mentioned was at this meeting. They told the young guy from the boat, uh, "You're not part of this." They're like, he's like, "What?" And they're like, "No, no, no." It's like, you know, we can't have everybody die. He's like, "You got to be here if this doesn't work." And he's like, "I'm probably going to get to see some action, and you guys aren't going to let me go." It's like, and then they just walk off, and he's like really pissed. <laughs> so of course, eventually, so they're at this impasse, and he shows up with the cavalry, with all these like. Like little boats, big boats, and so they all hook up to pull him out. So they finally pull him back to the surface, just in time. And like he's kind of freezing, so it's actually their plan kind of worked. And then they, so it looks like they've won, and they're like, "Oh wow, it worked," and everything. And then we start seeing, and then the plane shows up again, and we're like, "Oh no, he's going to mess this up," because. And we think he's gonna like he's not he does not need to blow himself up because they've won. So he flies the plane in into his mouth, blows up like blows his head open like it was like from scanners, you know, awesome. yeah. And so like the piece and then he starts falling apart because I guess because he's frozen and like all the and then the radiation starts shooting out from it and everything and we're like, it's we've won but at what cost? And then it's well, and, yeah. and then we and so then of course then we hear over the radio, no, there's a parachute, and we cut and we see that he's actually he actually has ejected from the plane, so everybody's happy. We cut back to, um, Pakibana, and we see the scene where he says, well, he's listening to this on the radio and he starts crying, and then we cut to the flashback where it says this is this has an ejector seat use it. So we're like, oh, that's great. Like, he's alive, so we've got a happy ending. And then what we didn't know, well, we had seen during all of this montage, um, the, he had left when, when, uh, Shikishima left that morning, he left a note and all of this cash with their, their kid. And then she runs to the old lady, and she's like, Daddy left this note and all this money. And it says something like, take care of her when I'm gone, or something like that. And you're like, oh, you know, he." so it makes us think that he really is not coming back, that he's going to blow himself up. So while this is going, well, so while the fight's going on, a, the old lady gets a telegram. And you're like, what the heck is it? You know, but like, it's very brief and it's in the middle of the action, so you sort of aren't given any time to think about it. And then, um, we don't see what it is. And then we go back to the fight, and so the fight ends, and they all come back to port, and everybody gets off the boat, and she's there with the kid, and she's got like the note, and she gives it to him, and then we cut to like, some random place 
some hospital. And you're like, oh. <laughs> and so, like, he eventually walks in, and, like, the girl is still alive. She's, like, bandaged and bruised and whatever. But so she's still alive. So it's like, wow, we really have a happy ending after all. Like, they're going to be a family now. And so every- I thought when... So I don't know. I don't know if this is right, but when I felt like when I when she sort of like leaned down to hug him or sort of like came forward to hug him, there was like there was like a mark on her neck that was like as if she had been sort of like infected with something. And it's like and then when it, when the scene changed, I was like, did I really see that or was I just was that just sort of like oh it was just a scar or whatever? No, no. As when you say that, I noticed it too. But then I thought, well, maybe that was just her hair. Yeah, I don't. I, it was fast enough that I didn't, you know, I didn't pay attention to it. And people I went to see the movie with didn't see it, so I no, I uh, definitely well, I made it up. No, I definitely saw that, but I sort of just thought I was seeing things. Yeah, but well, but I, I yeah, I was like, is that a scar? And I was like, oh, it's probably just her hair. So yeah, so we had a happy ending, and then we cut to the ocean, and we see like one of the pieces of Godzilla floating in the in the water, and then it starts. Lighting up and pulsing, awesome. and you're and you're like, oh, Godzilla minus zero is next. <coughs> whatever's, whatever's next. So, so that's it. I there's there may be like a few little nitpicky things in there that like we didn't hit on, but that's oh, that's yeah. basically. But yeah, it's, but it's so great that you have again, you have like this monster movie mixed with like a fairly serious again post. War, Japanese recovery, survivor guilt, dealing with the radio, you know, and again, well, it, had you, a, it had a lot of the same stuff that I felt like, like when, uh, like Ishiro Honda, you know, of course, made all these sort of the early Godzilla movies. And whenever it seemed like whenever they were kind of let him do what he wanted to do, he would have these sort of like serious human dramas, you know, mixed into this, this sort of like monster movie. And this is how I, and that's how I felt about this one, where I was like, you know, they would do all this sort of stuff that was like, you know, grounded human human scale, you know, like sort of realistic uh, drama. And then you kind of go, oh, yeah, like they would go off to do something and be like, oh, yeah, there's like a giant lizard in this movie, too. I kind of forgot for a second. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, without like not having watched a lot of the old stuff in a while, to me, this is definitely like the film that feels most like the original film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Again, with its sort of very obvious metaphor about Godzilla being the bomb and everything else, and you know, again, when you when you watch Gojira, like without the Raymond Burr parts, right? You know what I mean? It's like it's a different movie. It's not a different movie, but it is a different movie when you like don't have the Raymond Burr stuff in there. Well, and they, and they they give you the starting point of like this is the world as we mostly know it. And then there's this strange thing that's come out of nowhere that that throws everything into a tailspin, as opposed to most of the other Godzilla movies where they're like, oh, is it time for is Godzilla here again? Oh, wow. Great. You know, like, oh, and there's six other monsters. Cool. You know, this one was one where it's like it's going to spend the time and the effort to sort of, you know, make you sort of make that transition from the world as we know it to a world where there's one one giant monster in it. You know, it's funny. This is, this is, like, very, very nerdy. But I'm like, do you know, like, the one piece of fan service? And I don't know if you could realistically do it, given, the like, the actual times, 
the time part involved. You was like the one thing that would have been like an amazing fan service cameo in this. <laughs> Is if they somehow could have used the Amato. <laughs> oh, okay, sure. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, but like, like, like it, it, the warship, if the they original could, warship. Yeah. yeah, like if they could have said it, because I, because I think the Yamato gets destroyed in like early 1945. Okay. You know what I mean? So like, if it had maybe been set, like, like there's a there's a way like you could have jiggered the time, or if they could have fudged like the history a little and like, actually like raised the Yamato. <laughs> like as the ship to fight guy, like I'm sure like Godzilla was carrying it, like the like the you know like the 70s Hanna Barbera Godzilla would like carry ships. <laughs> or, or, but you know it's like I'm sure there's like been like generations of like Japanese like fans who have been like, can you imagine Godzilla fighting the Yamada, like the original Yamada, not even like. Like, not even the space one. Yeah, not, the, not not the space the one, but, one, but like the real one. <laughs> and I'm like, cause you. And then I was I, I was thinking about how silly that would be. And then I was like looking at everybody's credits, and the guy who directed this movie actually made like one of the modern space cruiser Yamato movies. Oh, okay. So I'm like, this isn't as strange as I like, because I guess the the um, the director whose name is Taka. Tashika Yamazaki, I guess, has done, like, a lot of, like, genre stuff. So, hmm. you know, he made this, and I think he, like I said, I think he made, let's see, if I can. I was looking at it earlier. Let's see. Feature films. But, uh, but he's made, like, a bunch, yeah, so, like, in 2010, he made Space Battleship Yamato. Yeah, and then, I mean, like, and he's so he's and he and he made a and he made a Lupin movie. So obviously he's like ticking all of the sort of like well-known Japanese like import, like a lot of yeah. them. Yeah. So it's like you know he it's like maybe he thought of, yeah like maybe he thought, maybe he realized this would have been cool, but like the math doesn't work. Right. Or or like most fan service, it's distracting. You know, but I, but the funny thing is, I think, I guess, well, for a Japanese audience, they probably would recognize it. But like, yeah, if it was like your average American going to see a Godzilla movie, it'd be like, like, like if this, like if the Yamato would have been the the ship that like they destroy that he's the first time he uses like the atomic breath, and he like blows that one battleship wide open, like the Yuki yeah. or whatever it was, the one where like they see it destroyed while they're on the fishing boat. You know, if that had, yeah. like if that had been the Yamato, I'm like, oh, that would have been, that would have been. But then it'd be like, oh, there's. Then you had all the the Star Blazers people who are like, the Yamato could beat Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, never lose. It's like the, <laughs> it's like I. You may know if this is a myth or not, but like when they made the original King Kong versus Godzilla, like they made two versions, one where King Kong wins for like the American audience, and one where Godzilla wins for the Japanese audience. I mean, I don't know. I've heard that's a myth, but, like, I think that, yeah. Anyway, I mean, I like that idea. It seems smart, <laughs> but I don't I don't think, yeah, I've never, I've never seen the, whatever. I've never seen two, two versions of it. 
But it's funny. But it's like that's the kind of thing where you could see a movie producer going, especially when you're talking about, you know, retro stuff and limited knowledge. It's like, you know, if they released a version in Japan where Godzilla won, and we saw the version here where King Kong won, we wouldn't know that, right? It's the whole. It's like a Berenstain Bears type of situation. But it, it's it, it's just that funny thing where it's you know what I compare it to. I compare it to like celebrities who used to go to Japan to make commercials because uh-huh. because people in the United States would have no idea that like these people who you think would be are too important to do commercials in the United States they go and make you know like sort of the Harvey Keitel Santori you know thing oh yeah where it's like they're, they're totally absurd too well the I mean, ones they still do them i mean like Tom Hiddleston was doing weird ones that were just that just made the rounds like a couple of years ago, and the one the one that I always the one that I always quote people because I have it somewhere like on um I've got like tapes from like seventies and eighties Japanese wrestling that are like that still have the commercials in them from when they aired on TV, and there's <laughs> there's one where Sean Connery is doing a tire commercial, so it's not even like he's not doing like a sport you know it's, like if like Sean Connery got like five million dollars, you know, in like nineteen eighty, you know, whatever, to go yeah. to Japan and like do a commercial for like Aston Martin, you'd be like, okay, well it's Sean Connery and he's making an Aston Martin commercial and they gave him ten million dollars. No, this is a tire commercial. It'd be like you know like if he like made like a Michelin commercial in the United States and you'd be like, why is Sean Connery making a tire commercial? Right. Right. Ten million dollars. That's why. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> people don't know. Yeah, your your artistic credentials are not being sullied if people don't know about them. Right. I mean, it, it is it is funny to see that that those kind of ads, and it's all these people that have never done a commercial in the United States. You know, they're way too important. Because I think, yeah, yeah, because I've it. yeah, because I think I've seen like commercials from like the '80s where like Madonna and Prince are doing commercials for like wow. you know like vodka or Coke or you know, some kind of, like, Japanese gizmo, and you're just like, you're like, I can't imagine Prince doing a commercial. Well, it's like, well, if he does it where nobody sees it, and they give him, they back a truckload of money up to his mansion in Minnesota, you know, why not? Right, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, within reason, of course. Yeah. You know, can't do it for just everything. But, um... So, all right, so I have a question about, about... your take on this movie what's your what's your opinion of this design of godzilla i i heard someone say this last week i kind of agree i definitely like this more than sort of the more modern lizardy looking godzillas mm-hmm. like someone said i kind of agree that this godzilla was designed to look like it's still a guy in a suit sure sure I think I, I think that they are pretty committed to that, at least on that side of the Pacific. I mean, like, I did I didn't really mind the design, like in Shin Godzilla. Like I thought. Oh, I love the design in Shin Godzilla. I, I like that it was so different and so sort of satanic looking. Like I I thought that was really kind of cool. Um, I thought it was interesting how this one. I thought design-wise looked a little bit more benign, but of course was seemingly a little bit, was kind of more evil. Like this is one of the only movies where you really root for Godzilla to die. (laughs) 
Um, but uh, yeah, I I, I kind of liked it. I mean, I like this design, and it's kind of based on my favorite design, which is like the like the 2000 era, like uh, Millennium Godzilla, where he has that sort of like cat-like face. Um, I think that they, I think there's an obsession now with making Godzilla kind of chunky, like in kind of, I don't know, uh, not, I don't know, like like the the legendary ones, uh, legendary and the King Kong ones and stuff like that, all make him really really stocky, uh, and I think this one kind of followed that a little bit. I mean, uh, I've it definitely felt like a more retro design. Yeah. You know, to sort of evoke more of, like, again, going back to, like, the original or that. To me, you know, more than any movie Godzilla, the first thing I always think of when I see Godzilla, because I have it, is the 70s toy. Sure. sure. That, to, that, to me, is what, that to yeah, me is what Godzilla... Yeah, Godzilla can shoot his fist off. That's the true Godzilla. <laughs> I mean, that's that's my Godzilla. I mean, I mean... Because I have one. It's like right. I, n- I never had a Shogun Warriors figure. Hmm. You know, but I did have the Godzilla. And I, it's still in the house somewhere. I still have the fist. Annoyingly, at some point when I was a kid, the tab broke off. Oh, no. For the, for for the, the tongue? F- for the tongue. Yeah, for yeah. The, So, but yeah, it's somewhere still in the house. <laughs> but yeah, so, which kind of segues... I asked you about sort of doing this as a topic, but you said you really don't have any great knowledge or love for it. But I thought it would be funny if we talked about the Marvel Godzilla comic. <laughs> but you were like, that was like slightly before your time or you didn't read it when you were a kid. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, a little bit be- before. I mean, they were kind of doing it in the late 70s, early 80s, which I, I was old enough to read it, but I didn't. I didn't really read comics until I was kind of in middle school like in the mid 80s but um i mean i i loved i mean i love that they do that and i've i've read some of them since and it's like i love that it that it's like there there was no like sense that oh this is a standalone universe it's like no he's gonna fight four <laughs> well i took one for the team and read all 24 issues or oh my god le- really okay. or or at least skimmed all 24 issues but yeah so like you said it's set decidedly in the Marvel Universe, um, like, the main theme throughout the whole thing is he's fighting... Because he shows up in the beginning, and he's just sort of rampaging, but, like, he's he's in Alaska. Like, he... Like, in issue one, he shows up, he tears some stuff up of in Alaska, he, like, rips open the pipeline... You know, and so there's a scene where he's like wielding the pipeline, sort of like the subway cars. You know, so you kind of get that yeah. that shot. And so they send Shield in after him, and this is like the running theme of like the entire two years. The book's only twenty; it's only twenty four issues, so like it only lasts two years. And so like the running thing is like Shield, and it's not even Nick Fury. They sort of deputize Dum Dum Dugan. Hell yeah. To uh. So it's like this. So like the overarching thing, theme of the entire thing is sort of like Dum Dum Dugan is Ahab, and he's like the Shield Helicarrier. And there's a couple of different versions because he destroys a couple of them along the way. So they keep like rebuilding it and redesigning it. Um, 
is it's oh, awesome. This sounds great. So this so <laughs> again, you know, it reads better on paper, or it reads better while we're talking about it than it reads on paper. Oh sure. I mean, I um, remember the art was so so. Yeah, like, I mean, what I've seen like, of it, like almost all of it is Herb Trimpy. So it's it's I think Doug Mensch wrote all twenty four issues, and Herb Trimpy drew like at least like seventy five percent. I know there were some he didn't do. Tom Palmer drew a couple, mm. and uh, both those guys are great. Though I wonder if they were just not given them much time. No, Maybe they were. But uh, so it's it's funny because, and then he starts. Re- it's funny too that like it's also kind of a travel log across the country. So he starts in Alaska, issue two. He like destroys Seattle. Like, if you see the cover of issue two, he's, like, wielding, he, like, is chomping on the space needle. Yeah. Issue three, he's now in San Francisco, and you have your first crossover where he fight. It's like, it's like they're throwing him mid-card wrestlers. Like, issue three, he fights the champions. So, it's kind of like, here's some guys for Godzilla to beat. And I was telling one of my friends, I said, I said, I've gotten to issue three, and he fights the champions. And he's like, well... He's like, is Ghost Rider there? And I said, no. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's kind of like levels it out. So it's like, uh, so it's Black Widow, Hercules, Angel, and Iceman. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, here's some, especially for 1977, here's some B-listers. Yeah. You know, for Godzilla to, to, to chop on, not literally, but, you know, to, right, to, but they're all pretty indestructible. So, so like, even if they don't beat him, they're not going to die. No, and there's a great scene where, like, I don't know if he steps on him or not, but there is a scene where, like, Hercules is like underneath one of Godzilla's feet and like hurks him up, hurks him up in the air, like throws him at some point. So I don't know, like, if they did, like, Bambi meets Godzilla with Hercules, like, or he steps on him and then Hercules does sort of the Atlas thing. And then shoves him off, but he does do that. So eventually, you know, he makes his way across the country, and then we've also got this. The one of the other subplots is there's a Japanese scientist, because of course there is. Um, his like lovely Japanese assistant, and a trope that you know very well, the precocious child, this, oh, yeah. this, the scientist's grandson. Who believes in Godzilla no matter what? Well, he's always like Godzilla's not bad. Don't kill him. Like a couple times, he like he stops him. They stop him from killing him. And then and then also we've got um, as part of the Shield contingent, we've got Jimmy Woo, you know, who people now know from know from Agents of oh, Atlas. Oh wow, sure. Well, because also it's like how many established Marvel Asian characters, Asian American characters did we have in like 1977? So like right. one, probably like, yeah. other, I mean, I don't think like Shang-Chi ever appears in this comic, you know, but, mm. um, which is funny since Doug Bench is writing it. Um, right. So eventually we learn that there's this group of scientists, like, the the this scientist is like a good scientist because there was a plan that these other Japanese it may have been these Japanese scientists were the ones that like unleashed the bomb that awoke Godzilla and he was like the only scientist who voted against it or something like that. But anyway, so he's been working on an anti Godzilla weapon that they've been teasing throughout the first couple issues. 
And then we get to like issue like seven or eight, and we finally see that the scientist has been the guy behind building Red Ronin, who is like Marvel's in-house um, giant mecha robot. Right. Because right. because we mentioned it this. This is at the same time that Marvel is publishing the Shogun Warriors comic. Oh, right, right. Which, as a kid, I never realized that Marvel had actually taken three different franchise mecha characters and put them all in one comic. Because, well, I mean, because who yeah, had... that's, that's classic Marvel. <laughs> but, I mean, but reading this comic as a kid, you know, in the country in 1977, I didn't realize these were three different animes that, like, they had somehow bought the rights to. And put them all together and made them a team. Didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So so he builds Red Ronin um to fight Godzilla. Because by then by this point they've captured God they've managed to capture him at one point. So of course, like the plot of many mecha things, this kid sneaks into the robot and like becomes the one who uh because they couldn't get the robot to work before. But like the kid magically is the one whose brain works with the robot. So he becomes the one that gets to fly out and fight Godzilla as Red Ronin. And, you know, there's they fight a couple of different times over the series. Marvel also had invented their own weird giant kaiju monsters. Cause I'm oh, reading, really? Yeah, I'm... Uh, let's see. Issue... Th- have you ever heard of a bad guy? I don't know, like... Is, this is like kind of deep Marvel lore, so I don't know if you have you ever heard of a villain called Doctor Demonicus? Oh yeah, yeah. I I couldn't picture him, but I okay. remember that name. Well, I think this is where he started, but he's the one that grew all of these giant kaiju monsters. Surprisingly, in in an underground volcano lab that just happened to have that has this weird glowing meteor in it. So again. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're tick- I don't know how you'd make it any other way. <laughs> we're, we're ticking lots of tropes here. So, let's see. What is the issue? Where is, where is... So, like, the first thing he fights is, like, this monster called Batragon, which, as you can tell by the name on the tin, is part bat and part dragon. <laughs> and part Batra and part Atragon. So it's like a big orange dragon with bat wings. It's if you squint, kind of looks like Dollar General Ghidorah in a way, but only yeah. with with one head. Mm. So he fights this, and Shield shows up, and they're like, uh, Doctor Demacus says, "Oh, let them fight, and then we'll fight the winner." So he's like a smart bad guy for once, and then Godzilla like kills like all of his monsters or whatever, and then later. There's a giant Yeti because like by then he's like you know, I think like they're in the like the Pacific Northwest or like maybe like the Upper Midwest. So it's like a Yeti that it's like a frozen Yeti that had like been irradiated. So grew to God grew to Godzilla size. Who has let's see what is he has a wacky name. Let's see if I can. It's sort of like it's like Yeti something. As you might imagine, let's see. Yetrigar. Oh yeah. But That's what I would have named a Yeti kaiju too. <laughs> but but it's funny that I'm like reading all this, and I don't know if I've never thought about it before. But I'm like, 
why is Godzilla not fighting any of these, like, 50s Atlas Marvel monsters that we all kind of know and love? Right, right. I mean, yeah, I mean... Goom, or whatever. <laughs> I mean, you know, before he was a lovable, merchandisable toy, Groot was a giant evil tree. Yeah. You know... Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a great point. Like they they had a huge roster of like you know pretty standard you know standard monsters that could have really you know given Godzilla a run for his money, especially if they teamed up. I mean, I don't know if like the world was like ready to see like Godzilla fight Fing Fan Foom. I mean, you know, but in if hindsight, they're not ready. They just they need to get on board. They need to get on Marvel's level if that was the case. But so eventually. Goes on. Uh, at some point, aliens hijack Godzilla and send him into space to fight. It's like the classic. There are these two planets, and they've been warring for centuries, and they're like developing their own monsters to fight each other. And these one guys decide, hey, let's just steal Godzilla as our guy to fight their evil alien monster, like giant insect thing. So yeah. eventually, he ends up back on Earth. And then we start getting, like, more and more Marvel characters show up. He fights the FF at one point. He fights the Avengers. And then in a very sort of clever inversion, um, there's because they're trying to figure out, you know, how to fight Godzilla. Who shows up? Hank Pym shows up. So they, they gas Godzilla with some Pym particles. And suddenly he's, you know, like... Even bigger. Oh, no, crap. no, no, <laughs> that'd be funny. <laughs> no, so he's eventually like six inches tall, and so uh, yeah. he, he ends up like in the sewers. Like, there's a great cover because this is like one of the issues I had as a kid. It's like Godzilla in the New York subway fighting a rat. Oh my god! <laughs> so on the cover, it looks like you've got a giant rat, but it's actually no, because it's like a six against Godzilla. <laughs> but, but so. You know, that's, like, near the end, and then, you know, he fights some more people, he fights the event, you know, because it sort of ends with him, like, eventually fighting the Avengers. And then, at the end, they kind of realize, oh, you know, he's kind of not that bad, and somehow they communicate with him, again, thanks to, you know, Timmy, or, you know, whatever his name is. Right. Um, Kenny. Yeah, Kenny. And, And then, like, the last issue ends... Like, the cover has Godzilla walking into the sunset, like, in the middle of a city with some damaged, you know, uh, trucks and stuff on the ground. And he's fighting the Avengers, and he's in New York, and, like, you know, you know, here's him fighting Thor, here's him whacking the Empire State Building. Um, there's, you know, Spider-Man conveniently flies by long enough to take a picture to sell to J. Jonah Jameson. And then finally, like, the little kid is like, no, Godzilla, like, Godzilla actually stops and listens to him. And, like, he gives, like, the impassioned, there's, honest to God, like, a panel where it's Godzilla's eye. And he says, um, it says, grah? And then it's, it's like Godzilla's eye. And then you cut to the next, the next picture, and, like, Kenny is saying, like, we did it for your own good, but you've got to trust me. It's a close-up, and he's got, like, a tear coming out of his eye like he's like he's the Native American guy in the in the litter commercial. Right, right. The Italian guy in the litter commercial. Right, the yeah. Italian guy. And then, you know, so eventually he, like, picks him up 
and uh, again, this is like this is probably more from Gamera than anything. And so he's like handing, he's like holding him in front of his face, and he's like, "You've just got to go away. It's like you know, we'll leave you be." And right. then he and then he puts him down, and he just walks out into the into the water and disappears, and that's the end of the series. Yeah. So that all may be a lot more entertaining than actually reading it. Yeah, yeah. I it I do remember like the the yeah the art just isn't that compelling. It or it's like it doesn't have a it doesn't have much of a sense of scale to it. Like it doesn't. I don't know. Like the. You know, like when James Stoko draws like a Godzilla comic, it's like the scale is unbelievable because, you know, he uses 10 million scratchy little lines. And so it's like you can really see you really see that it's like, oh, this creature is really towering over whatever city. And, you know, these hapless scientists are zooming around in a van or whatever. Like it really it really works. Whereas I think that when a when you have to knock out like four pages a day on 1970s Marvel for pennies, you're you know. <laughs> maybe you're not super co- super committed to the idea of like you know really rendering out all the the you know details that will give it that sense of giant you know a giant monster I don't, through New York City. Yeah, I don't know if this is the only one, but the only one I remember this is in the last issue. I'll I'll send you this when we're done. There's like there's like the only double page spread I remember. And it's like Godzilla taking up like both pages of the double page spread in New York, and like in one corner you've got the hel- the helicarrier shooting him, and the in the foreground you've got like Iron Man shooting a laser at him, and in the background you've got the Human Torch flying by throwing a fireball at him. <laughs> I don't know if there's I don't know if Thor's in the picture somewhere. Oh, there's Sue. Sue's like in the fantastic car doing something or other and the things, the things shooting like a giant machine gun at, or like a laser weapon at him. And, uh, Reed is like trying to lasso his head. This is like the, with his arm, is his arm the lasso? Well, it's, he's not making a lasso, but his, his, he's like stretching around the top oh, of yeah. his head. So like his head is like sort of at the bottom of his chin. Like he's like looking, he's he's like looking right. So Reed's head is like at the bottom of his chin, and his arms are stretching like across his face, and his hands are like on the other side of his face, reaching around. But that's but that's like I I don't remember much. Again, it's like 1970s Marvel, so I don't know like sort of how experimental you were going to be, especially with like a licensed comic. You know, where you're just sure, trying to, you're sure. just trying to get, I mean, you know, like if Steranko had drawn this, then, well, you know, <coughs> who knows? Well, I'm sure this is probably something you dealt with drawing Kaiju Max. I mean, out of, you know, 30 some odd issues, probably like, like how often did you indulge and do like a double page spread of like giant monsters fighting each other? Almost never. Well, I mean, that was the whole that was the whole thing. Whereas, like, I, I, there's no double page spreads, and there's probably I could probably count the number of like splash pages on one hand for all thirty issues because it was like, yeah, I didn't I didn't ever sort of allow myself the indulgence of two monsters fighting because it was never about that. You know, it was always about like, and I also sort of felt like you want monsters fighting. There's plenty of comics that do that and they do it great. You know, like Matt Frank 
it knocks it out of the park. Whatever. You don't come to Kaiju Max for that. You come to Kaiju Max for the, the sad, like addicted <laughs> monsters who are like moping, moping their lives away in the monster prison. Right. I mean, so I, sometimes it's like, in a way, it's like a huge time saver because you're just like, okay, well, there's details, but like, you know, I don't have to think of anybody's dialogue or I don't have to think of any, you know, I don't have to, you can kind of do it all from one perspective and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I resisted the urge. But yeah, so I guess we can go ahead and talk about Kaiju Max for a while. So it's been over for like a year or so, right? But I think you said yeah. that one of the hardcovers, like the collectors is, is like getting ready to come out like in the next week or so. Yeah, yeah, it's coming out end of next week, I think. So, um, yeah, I think a week from today, which I'm pretty pretty excited about. And what's that? Because am I right? There's like, is it like three hardcovers collecting everything? Is that how it's broken yeah. down? Yeah, that we kind of wanted to have there be like, you know, if you you know, obviously you can buy the the individual issues, you can buy the six paperbacks, or you can buy the three hardcovers. Or some variation of that, but I mean that you know the three hardcovers was sort of like, all right, if you want to express how much you love this comic, here it is. It's oversized. It's got annotations on every page, telling where like the des- monster designs came from and what this is a reference to and what that's a reference to. Um, and then it has you know backup stories and all the. I did a bunch of um, uh, like monster movie reviews in the back uh, of each issue, so those are all collected back there too. And yeah, I, you know trying to make it trying to make it sort of like the 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 ultimate edition and you know and it's nice too because when this final one comes out it's like i can finally say like okay i'm done i can breathe out like i can breathe out all that monster movie stuff and (laughs) and start making room in my brain for other things (laughs) because presumably at, at that point i guess the only thing left would be like the super giant one volume like Tashin sized Kaiju yeah. Max, but then it's like, like who other than your mom would really buy that? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it's it it is nice to have everything in one volume, just because then you know what your stock is. Because I'm, you know, every time you have more than one thing, you're like, oh, I'm going to a convention, I'm just gotta bring this, and you're like, oh my god, I'm out of volume two or whatever. Like it's just so frustrating to sort of like try to keep every, you know, all your stock at sort of like the same level or the correct, the correct level, you know, where like there's a lot of number one and less of each one after that. But, um, but yeah, it would be nice to have them all in one, but I mean, the, the three, the three hardcovers are heavy enough as it is. Like those things are, you know, every time I bring them to conventions, I'm like, I sure hope people buy these because I don't want to take them on the plane home. I know. It's always funny to talk to people when you go to conventions because it's like, because eventually I would go, and a lot of times I was more going to sort of network, especially because when it was more that I was just doing the podcast and not doing the magazine. It was more kind of like meeting people in person and being like, hey, you know, I got this pod and we do this, and would you like to come on at some point? And like maybe schmoozing and be like, oh, yeah, I used to do this, and I've, you know, done this and this and this. So I really have, like, I got down to like one box. You know, yeah. it's like I have like a couple issues in the magazines and then like business cards and then like I still have like a box of pens that I bought like when I first started like 25 years ago or whatever that like I bought like a box of like 500 big pens that have like 
the studio they have the name. Logo on them. Yeah. They have, yeah, they have like the name of the magazine and the website. I, I still have that box. It's like half full still. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like so I take like I grab like a handful and I throw them in the box and I take it with me. So it's like you know whatever. It's like yeah, like I always worry about like 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 people like like you have got like or have like such a wide variety of stuff too. Then it's like. You know, okay, I bring everything that I'm currently working on, and I bring yeah. like, and I bring like the stuff that I did for Marvel and DC because people have hopefully like heard about that, and it's like, yeah, you always want to get that thing. You want to have the thing on your table that people have heard of, so they're like, oh, you know, like I'll have a Rick and Morty comic on there. They're like, oh, Rick and Morty, and then they come over and they see the other stuff. Can't all be it. Can't all be your own creator own stuff, or else people would be like, eh, not interested. <laughs> and because you've done and you've done like a lot of licensed stuff too yeah so I imagine like again if you're like got like the casual person walking through the con and they see like you're like hey I've like done a Star Trek book right <laughs> right yeah I mean it, and it's and it's interesting too because it's like well now you know Rick and Morty stuff is really useful for getting over people who might like Kaiju Max because it has the same sort of like you know, it's a cynical thing. It's sort of like a mashup and it's a, you know, it's, it's sort of a postmodern take on certain things, you know, whereas, uh, you know, if, um, I don't know if I'm trying to promote like heck or something like that, you know, like I might have, I might have something else up there, like a, you know, a Simpsons thing or whatever. And yeah, or Star Trek and yeah, it's, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of, and it, and a lot of times it's just like, well, what do I have? You know, what's easy to get? Well, who can I send an email to and they'll send me a box in time for the next convention? So a lot of times it's a little bit haphazard what's uh, what's actually on my table. I'll say because it's, yeah, like you're a good person who's done like a bunch of variety where it's like, like do people still come and like ask about like the top 10 and like smacks and stuff like that? Oh, is... yeah. Yeah, in fact, it's funny because it's like I felt like I felt like Smacks kind of came out and landed with a bit of a thud 20 years ago or whatever it was. But since then, I've had a lot of people come and tell me how much they like that, you know, which is, which is great. You know, and I do, I do a lot of, you know, relatively speaking, I do a lot of commissions of Smacks and toy box and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's fun. It's fun when like things age into something that people really think of fondly, you know, like, do people still ask you about the tick stuff? Oh yeah. Well, you know, usually people will be like, "Oh, I've been a re- I've been reading your stuff since the Chainsaw Vigilante," and I'm like, "That's a long time. You're old." <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like yeah. Uh, but you, usually, I mean, you know, the Chainsaw Vigilante thing that I did with the for the tick stuff is, I mean, it's a mixed bag. It's you know, usually people aren't telling me that that was their favorite comic because it's nobody's real favorite comic. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, people will bring up every comic that, that I've done, like, and bring up stuff that it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot that I did, you know, a cover for that, or I wrote one issue, or, you know, and d- did layouts for, for 50 DC comics for a couple of years. and Which nicely brings us to the point in the podcast where I always say, will we ever get any more replacement, God? <laughs> um. You know, it's. I hear from people who want to publish that every once in a while, and I guess I just sort of feel like I, I would do this, but not as a, but not as a 
like a labor of love. I mean, it would be a labor of love, but I, but I also sort of feel like I would do it for a page rate. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to knock out 250 pages, more pages or whatever it would be and finish the story just, just for the love of the game. I, it's like, I'm so, I'm too old to be doing comics the way I was when I was 23 years old, which was just kind of hoping that like they would catch fire and I would suddenly magically make a lot of money off of them. But it, it's like, it's just, it's just frustrating. Cause it's like, it's like people are like, don't you want to finish this? And I'm like, yeah, sure. But I don't, I can't like survive on goodwill. <laughs> and you know, I would love to finish it. I would love to finish it, but it's, and, but it's also like, I want to, I want it to be like a real job. And see, part of that is too. It's like, I like to see you do more to see how it ends, but you know how it ends, so you don't have to worry about finishing it. Right, <laughs> right, right. And I mean, and funny thing is, I'm like, I've always kind of thought like, oh yeah, I could just pick it up any old time. And then when I had a, you know, there was sort of like, I am still sort of like entertaining ideas about like bringing it back. I, I have to go like, oh, what, what was happening in, in this comic? What was about to happen? Like, and I also think I wanted to bring some of the, writing skills that I've hopefully developed over the last 25 years and kind of, you know, kind of tighten it up and make it a little bit, a little bit more, it was a little bit of meandery as a comic. And I would, I would kind of like to, uh, you know, without, without changing, without changing it, without changing the vibe of the comic, I'd, I'd like to sort of make it better written and make it sort of more focused and kind of move the story along with a little bit more speed. See, I would think, too, from your point of view, like, I'd be tempted just to, like, start all the way back over again at number one. Oh, my God. And nothing, like, nothing fills me with more dread. <laughs> but, I mean, but you sort of, like, like reboot it from the beginning, and then maybe, like you said, like, now that you have, you know, 20 years of storytelling behind you, that, you know, like, Stuff that you like, maybe this didn't work in issue two. So now, if like I could retell this and maybe condense it so it's not as meandery as you said, and then you know, this in hindsight, this part of the story really didn't work, so I could just sort of brush that under the carpet. And yeah, I, I, mean, I, I guess I understand that, but I also think people, people didn't buy it and read it because it was the best comic around. They bought it and read it because it had a certain it had a certain charm to it. I mean, I think, it, you know, again, it's like it's a mixed bag. It's but it's generally speaking, I think for something so old to me, I think it's it, it has a lot of charm and it has a lot of character business that's quite fun. And, and I wouldn't want to take any of that stuff away from people. The only thing that I would the only thing that I've sort of considered doing and this is there's this technical reason for this, too, is is uh, going back and coloring it you know, a, because a black and white comic just isn't, it just isn't anything anymore. You know what I mean? Like that's, you, you, if you're going to do something that's supposed to be sort of like a lush fantasy world, it really ought to be in color. And I think that even though the book was designed to be in black and white and it's very crosshatchy, I think that, I think that we could, I could make it, I could color it in such a way that it, that it would work, but also a lot of the originals have been lost. And so a lot of the, uh, a lot of the pages would have to be shot from printed pages, which is a significant loss in quality. And I think coloring it would, would mitigate some of that. It would take away, you know, you wouldn't be sort of as irritated that like, Oh, this page, 
is a huge drop in quality from page four is a huge drop in quality from page three. That's funny. I might actually have still like a page or two of that somewhere in the house. Oh yeah. Well, if you scan it, if you scan it and send me a digital uh, version, I would love it. But it's also <laughs> I, would probably, I would probably put a big call out because I mean it's like probably a lot of those pages are in the hands of people that I'm still in touch with, certainly with Facebook and all, but like, you know, but friends, you know, like, like you and like, I mean, there's all kinds of people that are like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, Brian Lee O'Malley posts a picture of his, of his uh, studio. There's one of my pages on the wall or whatever, you know, like Brian Hurt has a bunch of pages, you know. But I know it's funny from like, especially like independent people from that time. It's like when I had pages, and you kind of see, like, you don't, at least at the time, I didn't really understand how sort of low-tech, like, art could could be, like, at that time. Because I yeah. know, because I know, like, I had, a, like, for a while, like, I had a bunch of Bendis' pages, like, from Jinx or, like, stuff from around that time. Sure, yeah. And, like, you know, and he, like, has a lot, though, like, does a lot of, like, chiaroscuro, black and white kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, like, Super so... photo repped, you know, yeah. But, like, you have all these pages with, like, all these blacks and then, like, maybe, like, mostly black and then, like, a person's face. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then you get, and then, like, you actually get the page and you see, like, this actually is just colored in with a Sharpie. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, but, you know what I mean? And you look at it and, it like, it has that Sharpie ink look to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, not like ink ink, but just, like, you can tell, like, somebody colored this in with a Sharpie. Right, but and that like, might not be aging so well, huh? No, that's the. There's the. I know there's something I have. There's a page. I have like a DC cover, where, like it's been so like this is like from the 70s, so it's so old that like the glue for the DC bullet fell off. Oh bummer. So like I have it, like it's it's like paper clipped to it. Oh no, yeah. But I'm like. So I'm like, well, do I glue this back on? I'm like, because I'm, because it's like I'm not selling it. Like, you know, it's yeah. it's a cover of Secret Society of Supervillains. That's something I, as me, as me, is never getting rid of. Sure, and that doesn't. I don't, wouldn't necessarily think it would command a huge price on the open market either. Well, I mean, <laughs> the way the way '70s pages are these days, I oh, would maybe, yeah, maybe. And it's a, I mean, it's a cover, and it's the last issue, mm. and it's got like four or five, like, I'm trying to think, it's it's got, like, a bunch of minor characters, like, it's got, let's see, it's got, like, the Golden Age Adam, Dr. Midnight, like, the wizard in his weird 70s costume, and then, like, the Floronic Man, like, Woodrue, oh, hell yeah. and, like, maybe Blockbuster, you know what I mean? So it's not like Superman and Batman's on the cover. Right, right. <laughs> but, yeah, and I think, like, I think it's Rich Buckler, but, you know what I mean? It's hmm. like, there's stuff that, like, you would think weird, obscure stuff from the 70s would, like, still be, like, affordable. And you're like, no, it's still probably, like, you know, like, north of, like, 500 bucks or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just, like, it's the kind of thing where I think, I hear people say, like, when they bought stuff in, like, the early 80s, how cheap stuff was. And I'm like, I think about how expensive pages were that I bought, like, in the mid-90s when I was at San Diego that I thought was, like, boy, this is a lot of money, you know, and then I look back and I'm like, you know, I was paying like $300 for like Starman pages. And I'm like, now that seems like such an incredible deal. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. 
You know what I mean? And I, I like, I had a bunch of pages from like Alan Davis's JLA the Nail book. Oh my you God. know, and I'm like, I remember I, you showed them to me actually. Yeah, because I, I, I remember. I think you showed me one when you bought the year you bought it. You know, you know the time that you bought it. I was like, it's like, oh God, that's awesome. But I mean, I mean, Alan Davis is my, you know, he's he's top of the heap for me. But I mean, and they were like, like nerdy important pages in that story that like, like I know I bought the page where like the Flash vibrates Amazo's brain out of his head. <laughs> that's a great page. You know what I mean? <coughs> Which is cool, but I think I mainly bought it because it had Raza Ghoul on it. Yeah. And like I may have bought like one of the Batman. Like I think I had the page. That has like like where Batman kills the Joker or something, and like they cut to Batman and he's like in silhouette sideways. That like classic, like he's looking at the camera, but it's all black except his two little eyes. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah. And like I know like all of those I eventually sold because I needed the money. You know, like in the early 2000s or whatever. But now I'm just like, you know, if I had had some patience. Because there were some, like, there was, there was a page that, like, I've always, always wanted that I probably could have gotten relatively cheap at the time. Because I used to have a bunch of Morrison Animal Man pages. But, like, mm. nothing, like, important, important. But I just wanted to have a bunch of them. But, like, one of those pages from, like, the end of the series that has just, like, a page of obscure DC characters on it. And I was just, like... I'm like, I wonder how much that is now. And like, I found like whichever art dealer has it now, it's like fifteen hundred bucks. And I'm like, and yeah, you know, I would I occasionally will go. I've always, always wanted this. And part of me is like, that's more than the new computer you just bought for like a page of art that right, is just right. And unless you're, unless you're gonna flip it. Or, you know, or hang on to it for a couple of years and then flip it? I don't know. But that's, like, something I would never, like, unless I was absolutely... Because there's, like, some art that I was thinking about getting rid of just to free up some stuff for, like, medical bills. And I'm just, like... Like, I know I have, like... I think I have a two-page spread from the Six Gun. Mm. And I'm, like, it was really cool because I remember, like, he was having some sale because he had some like issue where he needed to raise money. And I was like, well, I love the, I mean, like, I love that book. And I'm like, Oh, it's like a double page spread. And it's like part of the lore of some, it was, I don't, I don't remember what it was, but you know, so it was only like a couple hundred bucks, but I'm like, you yeah. know, I have that. And I'm like, you know, it's not like it's displayed or anything. It's in like a portfolio somewhere. And I'm like, I assume I would probably get more for that now than what I paid for it like 10 years ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to get... It's like I look at, like, the art that I still have that I want to get... Like, a couple years ago, because he never does them, like, I got, like, a Stan Sakai commission. Yeah. You know what I mean? That was, like... I think it was, like, 500 bucks. And that's... So it was, like, full page, one character, five Because... I think he was like, it was like during the pandemic. So, like, you know, people were doing lots of commissions at home to try and get money. Yeah. And so, I was, but the thing that I always wanted, as much as I love Usagi, and this again talks to us about being nerdy, especially nerds for like Japanese culture. 
<laughs> we were talking about how great the music was. I was actually listening to like that Godzilla thing before we started to like rev myself up. But uh, like, so I got um, I got like a full page sketch of Lone Goat and Kid. Oh wow, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, <laughs> I wouldn't. It's like this is so great. It's like I wouldn't, I would never want to get rid of this. But I'm like, you paid five hundred dollars for this. It's like you have this medical issue lingering that like you have to pay for and it's like you know I've scanned it already I have a copy you know what yeah. I mean it's like but do I really want to like flip this even if I get like say I doubled and got like a thousand bucks for it but then it's gone and then right. it's like now I can't get it it's like I have a copy and I yeah, know I'm they, the one now you can I, watch how much it costs now on eBay or whatever <laughs> yeah and it's like you know I know, I know, like, if I saw it in the wild, I'm like, I know I'm the one that had that drawn for me. I just don't own it anymore. But, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like, art is just so insane. I remember there was an auction, there was, like, one of the Sotheby auctions where they were off auctioning, uh, it was, again, it was, like, anime stuff. So there was, like, a bunch of Lupin cells from, like, the 70s. And... Mm. And like, but like, and they were like amazingly cheap up until the auction started. Because like, I put it like a reserve bid in of like, the one was still like at fifty dollars like the day before, and I was like, oh. I'm gonna put a reserve of like three hundred, which is really more than I probably should be paying. But if I could get like a Lupin cell, yeah, cool. you know, even if it like Lupin isn't in it, but you know, some one of somebody's in it, so I put like a reserve of like three hundred, and I'm like watching the auction. And then, like, within 500, or within, like, five minutes, it's, like, $800. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, so much for that. And I know it's, like, I've, I mean, it's, like, you always, I've talked to, like, Phil Hester is always great of, like, being on social media and be, like, oh, look at this. I wish I could bid on this. It's, like, but you know, like, 70, like, 70s classic stuff. And I'm just, like, I can't even dream about, like, the cheap 90s stuff anymore. Let alone, it's, right. like, like, seeing, like, Oh, hey, there's hey, like Sotheby's has a Gene Colon Tomb of Dracula page up for auction, and I'm like, that'll probably go for more than my house. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, enjoy it, enjoy it, everybody, with a ton of disposable income. It's the kind of thing where a lot of that stuff is just like I like just seeing the picture. I'm like, can I save the picture so that I have it? And then like I don't need to own it. I'm just I think it's just cool to see. I mean, you know what it is like? You go to convention and you go to somebody's table. And you just, like, look at the art to see, you yeah. know, in full or whatever. Or, again, like, if you go to, like, one of the dealer's pages and you're just like, wow, I never thought I'd see, like, in person, like, a page of, like, Frank Miller Daredevil. Like, I could never afford well, this. Yeah, but, the, I mean, every once in a while, like, I feel like dealers are starting to have things where they, like, have, like, color printouts of our artwork at original size. And so like they've taken a they've taken a color scan of these pages. And so it's like you can see the the color of the page and the size of the art. And then like, oh, there's some white out on it or whatever. Or here's the paste up of the logo or whatever. And I kind of feel like that scratches like 80 percent of the itch of getting certain pages of original artwork, because it's like, well, it kind of it shows you the process stuff. That's the most important stuff to me, where it's like, oh, neat. Like that was that was how big they did it originally. And you can kind of see the, 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 you know, brush lines and, and, uh, 
and like, oh, this, you know, this was sort of a paste up because, you know, whatever, Kirby didn't draw Superman's face right or whatever, and so they had Kurt Swan do it. You know, like that sort of stuff, that the sort of thing that tells the story of how this art was made is is there, I think, that when, when you have these reproductions in a, you know, and in a way it's like, I don't want to be responsible for like, you know, for a thousand dollar work of art. That's, that's for people who want to make money off of this stuff. I don't really care about making money off of that stuff. Yeah, I just that, want to look at it. That, that reminds me, something that's similar to that, but is like a lot more sort of in like the affordable price range is colorists started selling their color guides because mm. mm. yeah, I, I remember we we had when I still worked at the store we had Tom McCraw once like I think like when he was working on Legion back then and he's kind of like you know I'm a writer and a colorist so it's like what do I bring to a convention or whatever <laughs> right right but so well oh. So he had like, <clears throat> like his pages that are just normal, like eight and a half by eleven, that are like hand colored, like with markers. But then they have like all of the numbers next to it. Yeah. You know yeah. where it's like, and because I remember I bought something on, on eBay a couple years ago. That was that was a, a it was either Chaykin or Simonson did, like, an eight-page story in, like, weird war tales or GI combat or something like that mm. that was colored by, um, I think, Lynn Ween's ex-wife, you know, who was, like, a mm. colorist for DC in the 70s, or it's either her or, like, Tinjata Wood. And mm -hmm. so, like, it was, like, eight pages colored, like, you know, with marker that had all of the color numbers on it, and it was like an eight-page story, and it was like fifty bucks. Yeah, that stuff's amazing. And I'm like, that's so that's like a cool artifact that you don't see. Because I remember telling, because yeah, I, I remember um, like when when yeah. Tom when Tom came to the convention, he had like, so he was he was coloring Aquaman then. So I think this may have been like Peter David era. So. He had like an entire issue that I bought for like twenty bucks. That was like yeah. twenty pages of just like hand colored, and then had all the numbers on it. And I'm like, this is something you never see, like as a end product consumer. You yeah. know what I mean? It's kind yeah. of like or like watching somebody ink. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you don't, you know. It's such a pro, you know. I mean, it's such sort of like an individual process as it's being, like, oh, the steps are being made. You know, like unless you're, you know, somebody that does everything. You know, like, you know, I don't know if there's, you know, how many people do like, you know, draw it and ink it and letter it and, you know, color it if it's in color. Yeah, you know I mean, like, I don't know how many. I mean, I do all that stuff, but it's but it's all done on the computer now. So there's no real artifacts right. from any of those, you know, from any of that stuff. It's just like, oh, no, it's just, you know, I I brought all the inked uh, lines into inked, so-called inked. I mean, they're yeah. all just digitally inked into another, you know, another file. And that was all where the color goes. And, yeah, I don't even do a I don't even I don't even do a rough, you know, 
even a, a layer of that. It's just, it's all just done in the file on the, I mean, it, it's nice because it's that much less work and that much less sort of like having to reproduce somebody else's work. But, you know, it is too bad that they, you, you lose things like that, like those, uh, like those color guides. I remember seeing uh, Steve Olaf was at a at a show and he had a bunch of um, the uh, Akira pages that he colored. Uh, they had color guides for those. It's like that was cool. That was cool as hell, you know, because he, I mean, insofar that anybody should color Akira, Steve Olaf is the man to do it. Like he was such a good colorist. Well, I know, and I know I've talked to people who say like the other one of the like downsides, if you want to call it that, to just doing digital instead of physical is like, you know, we were talking about how much this stuff is selling for. It's like, you know, it's not, you can't like go to a convention and sell Kaiju Max pages. Right. You know, and I, I mean, mean I can't, I, but they don't exist. It was like, I could print these out and you could buy, you know, like a, you know, if it was like 11 by seven, you know, like, or whatever quote unquote yeah. size. Yeah, I do do that. I mean, I do, I do prints of pages and uh, yeah, they they look they look great, but they look just like the comic comic book, just at originals, you know, originals size. You know, they're eleven by seventeen, um, and really, it's just sort of like, well, it's a, it's a way to look at the details, and it's a way to sort of, you know, think of the think of a page as an individual piece of art, which is sometimes interesting. But uh, but yeah, it's I think it's uh, um. Yeah, it's in a way in a way it's too bad to, to lose that sense of like here is this thing from halfway through the project that or from halfway through the process that sort of shows the steps. You know, like this, you know, this is line art with some whiteout on it. That's, you know, that shows you it shows you what is what is involved in the process. And that's kind of sort of lost i don't know i mean it, sometimes i sort of feel like it's interesting though like i would love to you know when you have an artist who works digitally it's like can you can i download one of your photoshop files and just look at it pa panel by pa or uh, layer by layer because that's pretty fascinating too where you're just sort of like oh look at how he did the sky you know like but th that did in what i would think would take you know seven steps takes only three because they did this you know they in this very efficient way yeah but that's it's hard you can't like like well, how do you give someone a photoshop file i mean or like at a convention how do you present somebody with a photoshop file that's like you know people who have like patreons and it'd be like you know hey i'm going to be you know sketching today or drawing an issue of blah 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 and i've got my camera set up and like you can watch me draw it and i'm like that's cool. Also kind of weird. You know what I mean? At, at the same time, it's you know it's you know it's always fun to like watch. You know, like if you're at a convention and you watch, you know, like when they used to do the thing where they would put like somebody on a stage and they would like draw as the like the panel went on, and then you saw what they did by the end. I'm like, yeah. But like it's it. I don't know. I don't know if it's like a space violation or something weird to be like, like like if you had a it camera, is, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say like if you just like turned your camera on while we were doing this and like you had been drawing while we were talking and it'd be like <laughs> kind of neat but also kind of odd at the same time. Yeah. 
Well, and I, you know, what's funny is that in, I feel like in America, at American comic conventions, I, that's most of my experience, people, are, people don't want to, or people feel like it's intrusive to watch you draw. And I'm, I'm always sort of like, you can watch me draw as much as you want. Like, if, if you have questions, you know, let me know. Whereas uh, I was at a convention in uh, New Zealand and people, people want to watch you draw it from start to finish. And it, it take a second to get used to it where I was like, oh, people don't usually do that. But like, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's kind of fun, especially if people have questions like, oh, why did you do that? Or why did you start with this method of, you know, watercolor? Or, you know, why did you, why are you cross-hatching that? I don't know. Like, it's, it's fun to sort of go like, let me think about it. I don't know why I'm doing that. Oh, okay. Here's the answer. <laughs> well, plus it's like you're part of a studio, right? So, I mean, yeah. it's, or do you used to be part of a studio? No, I am. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, you are. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, so, you know, you're used to like being in a room with a couple of different people to bounce stuff off each other or, Hey, I need you to model this for me or whatever, as opposed to sort of the right. stereotypical, like, artist just being like in one room of his house with his drawing table by himself drawing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were all kind of doing that for a couple of years, you know, but then, but now we're back at the studio. It, it is nice. I mean, I think that there's a lot less of that than you might imagine. Like certainly nobody's modeling for anybody else, but, uh, which I think is funny. It would, it would be funny, but like, um, yeah, it, but it's also a thing where it's like, I don't want to look over your shoulder, but I'm utterly fascinated with how you, with how other people draw, you know, like, I think it's, I think it's really fun to watch people draw and, and think about like, I mean, even, even watching a video of myself drawing, it's, it's funny because it's like, well, when I'm drawing it, I'm thinking a couple steps ahead. So I'm like envisioning what's in this blank space and then I'm kind of putting it in there. Right. But when I watch the video, I'm not thinking that way. And so I'm just sort of like, Oh, he meaning me is you know now cross hatching this area so that to give it a sort of like a bounce light effect and oh that's interesting like it's i think it's and watching anybody else draw it's like it's fascinating to go like oh wow they're they're envisioning sort of like you know this this lighting effect that you know just out of their head they're just doing it they're just doing it figuring this lighting effect out completely on the fly how amazing is that yeah, it's definitely, especially as someone who has absolutely no artistic skill whatsoever. It's sort of like, it's like, you know, it's like you, some people, it's just like, I can't even, like, imagine, you know, like, you know, somebody like, you know, like Simonson drawing some of the stuff that he, like, drew, like, during Thor, or, like, looking at, like, stuff Chaykin did in Flag. And you're just like, it's just so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, watching, yeah, like watching them draw is, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I just, I just think, I just think that it's really kind of incredible. And I think that artists kind of forget how incredible it is, even to other artists, you know, like, I think, I think it's more amazing to me to watch another artist than it would be for somebody who, who doesn't draw. Like, I think that they would kind of go, Oh yeah, that's amazing. Wow. I can't believe he can come up with that out of his head. And I think, Oh, I've got my whole way of doing it, but they're doing it in a completely different way. They, they basically like, it's like this convergent evolution of like, 
they figured out how to do the same thing that I can do, but in a completely different path and come about it in a completely different way. They sketch things out in a different way. Like, like um, Daniel Warren Johnson, you know, it's just, I mean, he's this unbelievable artist, right? But like, and his stuff is so sort of like, like ink heavy and like, and bold and gestural and sort of stuff. So that I thought, oh, okay, I bet he just, I bet he just like barely sketches out sort of a figure to get the proportions right. And then he just goes in with the ink, but it's totally wrong. He's, he goes in with pencil so hard and so like he uses such a soft lead. I mean, maybe not that soft, but it's like an HB lead. Like he really draws really hard and his page is just covered with graphite. And then he starts to ink it. And I, it's like, I never would have guessed that in a million years that like he, that he works it all out in pencil first and then, but then has this style that it seems so loose and so sort of spontaneous on the page that uh, like, I'm, I'm always just astonished by his artwork every time I, every time I see it, like both when I see the finished product and then when I see like him halfway through a drawing of Batman or something. Definitely. Which again, I, I believe I obligatory have to mention this story again. It's like, it's too bad we did not pull off that dueling 24 hour comic thing that we had once talked about doing at the store. <laughs> Because there, there, yeah. you would, there you would have been able right, to watch. With Willingham. With, it? Well, yeah, yeah, it was Bill Willingham. Yeah, back back in the years, like, ah, oh, yeah, when, when us, you know, us, uh, you know, us veterans against you young Turks, meaning me, and I'm like, oh, I'm not such a, it's, uh, I'm not such a young Turk anymore. I'm the, I'm the old, old Turk. <laughs> Definitely. Well, Xander, thanks, thanks again for uh, doing Mark, the show. It's great. Sorry, it's, it's been great so, talking. You know, we'll have to make sure that it's not seven years until we have you on. Or it's exactly seven years. We can do it again in yeah, seven years' time. We'll talk about even older stuff. When I have <laughs> – yeah, I will still ask you about Replacement God in, like, 2030, whatever. Oh, oh. It'd be, yeah. It was, that, was, that was the one funny thing. I, I sent you a picture a couple of weeks ago. Like, I had just gotten a uh, new prescription. And I had like the sunglasses I got were like totally round. <laughs> yeah. And, right. and I had a, I had a ski cap on, and I had these round glasses, and I have like a goatee, and like I saw myself like in the mirror in the car, and I was like, I look exactly like one of the Visigoths that were in replacement God. And I sent, so awesome. and I I sent you the picture, so awesome. and I was like, I I still remember, again talking about <laughs> yeah. wanting to see more replacement God. Yeah, hold, holding the, you know, carrying the torch for the for this long forgotten '90s comic. Yeah. Oh, well, it's so funny to. It's like I was thinking about something. Well, maybe like right when I sent you that, it was just like I was telling somebody that, and I said, I said, I said it's so funny. There was like very briefly, like Image had this like black and white boom, you know, where yeah. suddenly like they like. I don't want to say snapped up, but like all of a sudden, like all these books that had been like at like other small press places were suddenly like at image. And I was like, this is just weird. You know, and it was like, yeah. like maybe a year, like if that, and then, you know, they all sort of, I mean, that was Valentino. Like, his... yeah, I was going to say it makes sense. Yeah. He was the one, I mean, he was always sort of the one who was the bridging the gap between sort of like, what was indie comics at that time, which is black and white, you know, black and white stuff that was sort of genre related. And yeah, I mean, he, he got all of us in there. I mean, 
for yeah for a short period of time and you know and i and i remember like man there was that image that image number one sold great you know like i've never gotten a check that big <laughs> it was it was amazing and then it just fell off a cliff you know like everybody was willing to give an image number one a shot and then they were like black and white you know mm, a little bit too deliberately paced if you ask me and uh and it just you know and i think that happened to everybody it happened to rag mop it happened to adventures of air and i think it happened to tug and buster and all those other you know image books and if people, uh, if, if people want to hear us talk about rag mop Ra- rob walton was on the podcast either this year or the end of last year when the when, oh yeah when he republished like the trade of all of that oh yeah uh, again oh, the there, i love rob there's a there's a there's a bunch of like late 80s independence like people that are on my like wish list of people to get on the pod and like i've occasionally mentioned about but just like never actually pushed hard enough to like um like i still especially now that he's i think had a clean bill of health now it's like i would love to have like ty templeton on the pod like not to talk about batman but to talk about stig's inferno Oh hell yeah! You talk about Stig's Inferno and, yeah. and 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 Mr. X and stuff like that, and it's just like there's all these weird, you know, like I would hate, like I would say obscure, but then like I'll mention it to people and they're like, oh yeah, I love that too. It's like we were talking mm-hmm. about we were talking about Usagi a little while ago, and like I have like the Usagi uh, ski cap that they sold yeah. like like five, six, ten years ago or whatever. Sure. I'm wearing it at work, right? And so it has like the 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 rabbit logo on it, right? But which is pretty abstract, right? right. Like it's in that little square. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the guys I'm working with said, like, "Is that Nusaji Ujimbo hat?" And I went, <laughs> "How? How? Because this is like this is like." I mean, I know this is like somebody who watches anime, so it's like he's not totally, but he's very sort of like salt of the earth, like football watching kind of mechanic kind of guy, you know, to 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 origin. He's like, well, because he's in the turtles, and I'm like, oh, I'm like, and the fact he's now had a Netflix cartoon, which I forget about. You know yeah, I mean? Cause, I, cause... I, I watched it for a minute and I was like, I don't know. You had the greatest samurai epic, forty years of it to adapt, and you, this is what you came up with. Okay. Yeah, I was. I mean, it's like, God bless Stan for you know whatever deal he made, but I was just like, oh, this is like a meant for kids, and B like in that computerized style that I'm not really digging, and like and this isn't meant for me. You know what I mean? So I'm like, I'm like, I wish him all the best in the world, but I was, I watched like five minutes. I was like, not for me. Right. And I mean, I, I you know, and that's I fine. Him. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think that all that sort of stuff, when you get stuff made into animated shows, it's like, you got to just think about like, sometimes it's just a check, <laughs> you know, like you can't, you can't make sure that it's for the most perfect thing. You made your perfect version of it. And now, and now, like, unless you can, unless you really want to sort of deal with the heartbreak of like really diving into it, it's like you're gonna have to trust that people are gonna, you know, 
make something good. And sometimes you can't, you have to just kind of let that go. Plus, it's like, it's one thing if you like, hey, I, you license this to make a show and it turns out not for everybody. As opposed to, like, I sold, like, if you're like Eastman and Laird and the like, we sold like Mirage lock, stock, and barrel to whomever bought it. So it's kind of like we don't like we don't even you know like you have no control anymore. Yeah. Then then I'd be like, you know, it's one thing to like license it for like a year or one project as opposed to like selling it over, so that it's like yeah. no longer your or it's like, you know, like if you're a certain creator in the news right now that I won't name. But it's like you sell like all of your stuff to a major streaming company, and then they hire you to adapt it into TV shows. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah. you're still in charge of it, but if something really weird happened, and you know, and like why wouldn't it? I mean, and and, and <laughs> well, then every day. Well, like and the and you do something stupid, and. You know, like, hey, like, say you sell Replacement God to Tubi, and then, like, Tubi hires you to make a Replacement God cartoon, and then you do something to get yourself canceled, and then Tubi says, um, we're gonna, we're not gonna have you do this anymore, even though you created it and you sold it to us. And you're like, well, I sold it to them, what can I do? Yeah. So, I I mean, mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, uh, and I also just, and but I also think, you know, life's finite, and sometimes, sometimes it's like, you know, having enough money to retire beats having ultimate control over your your, uh, you know, if I'm 80 years old, you know, like there's there's some decisions to be made, or you know, if I'm if I've got a child going to college or if I, you know, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff where it's like maybe, maybe enough money to live the rest of my life is better than controlling, you know, my third favorite project. <laughs> yeah. Cause as, I mean, especially if you're like a freelance cartoonist, you know what I mean? Where it's like, yes, you know, you're doing self, you know, self-owned, self-property, creator-owned stuff, but it's like, you know, yes, you had a hit with Kaiju Max, but it's like, who's to say, you know, your next project is going to be as successful as that, even if it's better? You know what I mean? You never right. know. I mean, the way, especially the way, like, the comic book market is these days, or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, who's to say? So, yeah, so if... I mean, like, if somebody, you know, offered you, you know, again, you don't own Chainsaw Vigilante, but, like, if right. you somehow did, you know what I mean? And, like, to be candid to you... They already took some stuff from that and put it in the uh, the, the Tick TV show on Amazon. So... Yeah. <laughs> I, had that, I had that sort of, like, uh, cat, feather in my cap as a cartoonist, which is, like, oh, yeah... I, I made something and then they put it in a thing and I didn't know about it until I saw that thing, you know. <laughs> well, I I've said this on social media a couple of times. My new favorite thing and this is kind of like well, macabre's not the right word, but close to it is now when you go to when you go to a superhero movie, 
and you get to the very end of the credits and you see <laughs> yeah. the and you see the special thanks. Yeah. And you see who they chose to list and who they chose not to list. Yeah. Which may or may not mean who got money and who didn't get money, which I don't know if that does or not, considering some of the stories you hear about like I don't think it necessarily means money at all. No. Think... But but it's so funny when <coughs> for example you go to see the Flash movie, and, like, there's all these people get, like, a special thanks, but yet somehow, like, Gardner Fox and Mark Wade aren't on the list. And you're wow. like, and you're like, that's weird. But it's yeah. like all these other, you know, it's like all these other people, and you're like, I wonder, you know, like, you're like, I guess there's a reason? Or, what was the, see, what was the last... So I guess like when this Aquaman movie comes out, the, like the next Aquaman movie that's I guess getting ready to come out, and yeah. we get to the special thanks, and you're like, okay, like this is all hypothetical, and you're like, okay, Jim Aparo got a special thanks, Peter David got a special thanks, you know, and then you're like, but hey, where's, you know, where's Ramona Fraden? Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think I mean I think with stuff like that a lot of times especially when it's something that's, you know, been owned by the company for years and years it'll be like oh, if they thank this person because they specifically used the design of this automobile right. or whatever that was from that issue and and it, there's a there's a paper trail of sorts and they probably and maybe they got a, you know, whatever, $10,000 just that they found in the DC couch. <laughs> and send it to them. I mean, it is is my understanding. Like, um, because there's a because there is a bonus a DC anyway. There is a bonus system that's like, you know, it, if you created this or that, like, you know, you'll get this sort of like unofficial. I mean, official but unofficial check. Like, it isn't tied into anything. It's just they just decide you created this. It's it's worthwhile to the company. We know that we know that 40,000 bucks is going to make you happy and it's nothing to us and it's good press and you'll, and then you'll rah, rah, the movie and you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I think Marvel has a similar thing, but it's way less money. Like there'll be whole, you know, full on taking people's panels as like, as like uh, storyboards and, you know, write them a check for, you know, 5,000 well, bucks. Well, that's you know, like nothing. Or the, the the thing with, like, the Hawkeye TV show. Oh, where, yeah. You know, where it's, like, the entire sort of, like, design aesthetic, especially for, like, the credits and things like that, were all, like, from, like, like yeah. the Fraction era David books. Aha stuff, yeah. Yeah, and he's like, oh, first I've heard of it. Yeah. And you're like, it's kind of, it's like, it's, understa it's not surprising, but still disappointing. Or, like, when you hear, like, I think, like, like when Devin Grayson was talking about creating Yelena Belova, and it's like, like the con the way they thought the contract was, it was like if you create a character that ends up in like a Marvel TV show, you get X. Yeah. And then it, then they come to them and say, well, no, it's X, but that's actually split between you and the and the artist, the writer and the artist. Which right. is not like how they thought the deal worked, and then it turns out, oh, by the way, and that money is only if they're in a certain percentage of the movie, 
And so, like, if they're a star, and if they're in the movie less than that, then the, then you only get X. And then what makes you wonder is, like, is there somebody at Disney who says, hey, we need to cut a scene with this character, because if this character is in the movie for one scene longer, we have to pay somebody, like, ten grand more. And it's like, I don't know that happens. If you told me it does, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it wouldn't, I mean... I don't think that they I don't think that they do that to save money. But I mean, I think that they would much rather spend the money on a lawyer, like have the scene, but then spend the money on a lawyer to sort of go, eh, it's a little bit murky. I don't think we're going to cut that check <laughs> because, you know, right now they've got they've got this sort of like weird. I wouldn't say goodwill, but they've got this sort of like, you know, this sort of this sort of like inevitability to them, you know, like the, the Marvel and to a certain extent, the DC universe or the DC cinematic universe, like that. They're just like, you know, what are you going to do? You know, you can, you could try to sue us. It won't work. Um, and people love our movies or love them or hate them. They, they happen every year. Uh, so I don't know. It's, it's, it's wild to me that they don't realize how easily they can pay off people who, everybody will ask about this movie you know like the person who created whatever werewolf by night give him give him enough to live for a year and he'll he'll do backflips at the at the premiere you know like <laughs> why not why not do that and you or, know especially when especially when marvel doesn't do it have dc do it and have them make a huge deal out of it so that so that then they're the good guys I just don't. I, I I'm always a little bit surprised that people don't just that people aren't a little freer with like this one-time payment. Or it's a thing where it's or it's weird when like now something comes out and you see like weirdly conflicting good guy bad guy stories where it's like oh you know like Guardians of the Galaxy three came out and it's like oh like so and so created like whoever created like Adam Warlock. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, did not get thanked in the movie. But yet, at the same time, it comes out that, yes, Marvel, like, has been paying Bill Mantlow's health care for, like, the last ten years and has given him X. And you're like, well, that's good, but it's like, these two stories, like, you know, it's like, I'm glad they did this, but then you also have, like, the other story, and it's like, it's like, why is it, why, why isn't it, yeah, it seems like for a company with, like, bottomless pits of money like Disney or Warner Brothers. Yeah, it'd be like, yeah, yeah, you would think you would rather have good PR than bad PR. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's like they're kind of waiting waiting out this sort of original, I mean, it, this is cynical of me, and I don't, I don't necessarily believe this, but it, it, it seems like a little bit like, well, it's like once you've waited out sort of like Kirby and Ditko and Lee, you know, who just all, you know, two of them just died last year, Right. And then uh, like when you sort of wait out all the people that like created 99 percent of the Marvel Universe, say, like then you, you know, then uh, then it's peanuts, you know, like, oh, yeah, we've got this guy who created Deadpool and then we've got this guy who created, you know, this derivation of Spider-Man or whatever. And so those people can get these sort of like minor checks but you know 
way back, if you've been paying, if you just sort of like cut Kirby a, like a $30,000 check, that's nice, but it's also like no, nothing would be enough that people would go like, oh, that's enough <laughs> to pay Kirby for creating this this multi-billion dollar juggernaut. Well, I guess there was a story, I think last week, where like Marvel slash Disney had settled with like the Ditko estate, and I think like Don Hex's estate, like a bunch of these like silvery. Mm. So like they had like, they had now settled deals with like most all of the like Silver Age creators and their families or something like that. So I guess like it's sort of like we've yeah, there's you know, a we've, lot going on behind the curtain that we don't know anything about. Yeah, it's like we've taken care of like this generation. It's like so now we've got like like if you're at Marvel, it's like now we've got to deal with like the like Roy Thomas, Steve Englehart generation of creators that did mm-hmm. all this. Stuff in Doug, like we've been talking about Doug Match, you know, like all these people from the 70s, you know, who created, yeah, because I mean, that was like their running joke for a while was like with both companies, it was like, how many care, how many marketable characters have like either of these companies made like in the 90s or in the present, right? You know what I mean? It was like for a while, it was like, well, Deadpool, and then yeah. like, and then Harley for, Quinn, yeah, you know, Harley Quinn, and it was like Lobo. You know, what mm-hmm. I mean, like Lobo was like the biggest mo- like modern creation success that like DC had, yeah. unlike other than ver- other versions of established characters. Right, right. I mean, that's I mean one of my <coughs> I don't know if this is a cynical take. I guess it is, but like one of my theories about why there's so much more multiverse stuff than there used to be <laughs> is that like. People aren't creating new characters that would like possibly evolve quote unquote ownership. You know what I mean? It's like Yeah. Yeah. I mean like if you know, like if you're doing Spider Man and you're doing like a what if and you create like old West Spider Man, you know, that got bit by like a radioactive spider in the Grand Canyon while being visited like in an Indian burial ground. You know what I mean? Something like yeah. that. I mean, okay, you created this version of Spider-Man, but it's still Spider-Man. Yeah. And yeah. to and to go along with that, I think the flip side of that is creators would say, I can write a story using Old West Spider-Man rather than me creating a new Old West superhero that Marvel will now own when I can just take my Old West superhero and publish it at... Image or Oni or Dark Horse or Boom, you know what I mean? It's like, right. why would I give you new IP when I can just recycle old? I can put a new coat of paint on old IP and make a new story out of it. Right. Well, and that's what and th- and I think that that's Marvel, cra- you know, cracking the code too, where they're like, oh yeah, we've got so many characters, and also we can make we can make our best characters into forty characters each. And that's, you know, that's so valuable to them because it's like they I, I think at this point, what do they need new characters for? You know, like, you know, you, we can all say like, oh, they'd, it'd be great if they would come up with new characters. But would it, <laughs> you know, like they can only publish so many comics per year. And uh, and I think that I think that in a way they, they're just sort of like, yeah, let's just let's just make different versions of these new characters. And then we, we can have something that has the appearance and the feeling of a new a new character, you know, like, you know, like some version of Spider-Man or like Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur or, or, or like things that are 
things that are like just a little bit different, gender flipped or whatever. And I think that that will serve them very well for the next hundred years, you know? And, and I think that the idea that you would want to create a new character with that, with, with these places that have all the characters that they've ever needed is, you know, I think it's, it's completely unnecessary. Definitely. Well, I tried to send us off before. Now I was sending oh, yeah. us now off. Now we are. Good. Okay. <laughs> now, now we are. Again, when we don't talk for seven years, there's a lot of tangents to go to. That's right. That's right. Well, I'm so I'm so glad to be on here. It's so much fun. Definitely. So definitely, everybody, pick up the new hardcover of Kaiju Max when it comes out, and get the other two if you haven't already. And definitely yeah. go and definitely go see Godzilla minus one. It's great. Yeah, thanks again, Xander, all everybody, right. and uh, you're on social media and all that stuff, so... Yeah, I'm on Blue Sky and Threads and Instagram, all at at Xander Cannon, just all one word. There you go, check it out. Thanks again, Xander, and we all will right. talk to everybody next time.